Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart, and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you to everyone who has recently taken the time to interact with us, and to everyone who has shared our posts on social media. Please do keep interacting with us, as it not only lets us know that you're listening, but it really does help us to improve and grow. We are now available on a number of different podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can find links to all of the various places you can now find us through our page at www.comroypod.vze.com. That's www.comroypod.vze.com. You can also download the episodes from there, and the page does contain something of a rogues gallery of various people who've either appeared on the show or who we've mentioned in various anecdotes and stories. Please do check that page out and let us know what you think via our social media pages, which you can also find linked from there. If you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others, and we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. Episode 22 sees the fourth and final part of our tremendous interview with former international referee Tony Nadette, as we talk amongst other things about Tony's trip to Italy in 2006 to work for New Wrestling Evolution, alongside names such as Rikishi, Ultimo Dragon, Matt Morgan, John Heidenreich, Joe Legend, Vampiro, and others. We also talk about some of Tony's best and worst nights as a referee, as well as telling a few more tales from his domestic refereeing duties. We also have all of our regular features, which this time have a common theme, crime and the police, as in short stories we recall the time someone tried unsuccessfully to break into John's house. Meanwhile, quote of the week features a story about a time we were pulled over on our way back from a show, which led to some interesting misunderstandings between two of the passengers in the van. Episode 23 will see the first part of my chat with my good friend Justin Richards, as we talk about our trip to Wrestling Canada in 2001 for the Calgary-based Can-Am Wrestling Federation. As I've mentioned before, this was a completely unique experience for both of us and we made memories over there in the freezing cold Canadian winter that will last for a lifetime. So I'm really looking forward to finally being able to bring you those episodes. But that's all to come in episodes 23 and 24. For now, sit back, relax and enjoy episode 22 of Is It Shane Ritchie?
It's now time for the first of our regular features. Short Stories Yes, it's time, once again, for Short Stories. For anyone listening for the first time, this section of the show focuses on my experiences in wrestling with the wonderfully eccentric MC of many years' experience, Mr John Short. Again, if you are new to the show, for a more comprehensive background on who John is, please do go back and listen to episode one, as I gave a little bit more of an overview of John in that first episode. Over the years, I've made hundreds and hundreds of trips in the car with John, across the length and breadth of Britain, and have worked on hundreds and hundreds of shows with him. He's someone I actually think the world of, even though you might not necessarily think so from listening to these stories. Some of my favourite times in wrestling have involved John in some way. So, as I've mentioned on a number of occasions before, I tell these stories not to knock the guy. Well, maybe a little bit. But more to celebrate and share his wonderful eccentricities with others. I should point out that he is a friend of both myself and my family, and has been for a long time. He also has absolutely no problem with me telling these stories. Just to make that clear. Having spoken at length about travelling with John, going postering with John, John's various announcing gaffes over the years, and various other things, this week I'm going to talk a little bit about John's home life, and specifically one incident that took place a few years ago now. I mentioned in the introduction that all of this week's features have a connection, that being the involvement of the police in some way. But before we get to that, I should just give a little bit of background as to John's home life. John lives alone, and has done for a number of years now. The most recent other occupant of the house, his cat Puss, having departed to Kitty Heaven in 2005. And there is a whole story concerning that, and a run of shows in June 2005, which I will be telling in a future episode. And believe me, it's an absolute cracker. But more about that down the line. While not many people have been allowed into the inner sanctum of John's house in Bristol to see for themselves, John himself admits that it's a real mess. It's fair to say of John that he's a hoarder, to such a degree in fact that he was nicknamed Mr. Trebus by one wrestler in particular, in reference to the compulsive hoarder of the same name featured in the late 90s TV series A Life of Grime. As I've mentioned before, John has in the past been described as an eccentric loner, which he refuted declaring that, to quote, I know lots of people. John is well aware of his own eccentricities, and is also well aware of the fact that his living conditions are not exactly run-of-the-mill either. For several years now, John has had various issues with his house. These have ranged at different times from having two large holes in his roof, and one in a wall, to having... In his own words, a large crack in my back door. And I can only assume, or hope, 
that he was talking about the back door of his house, which at one point had large amounts of snow seeping in through it, to any number of other issues. Before I go on, I'm aware that it may sound like I'm just taking the piss out of a vulnerable old man stuck in these awful living conditions, rather than actually doing something useful as a friend to help the situation. However, I should point out that John has said to me many times that he has more than enough money to get all of the problems with his house fixed, but prefers to spend the money on holidays and speedway trips to various far-flung corners of the globe. Therefore, as with many other things, John's approach to remedying the situation, where he had large amounts of snow entering his house through the back door, was somewhat more unconventional, preferring instead to leave the snow cascading in through the door, turning the kitchen stove on full, leaving it permanently on night and day, and spending most of his time at home lying in bed with his electric blanket on. Quite how long he kept this practice up for is anybody's guess, but as anyone who has ever tried to navigate John on a car journey of any length will attest, it can be very difficult, once he's got something set in his head, to change his mind. And just to illustrate exactly how cold this had all made his house, John told me that, for some reason, he'd left a bowl of water out in his kitchen one night, which, in the morning, had frozen completely solid. Given all of this, along with everything else, of course, some people might question whether John, now getting very close to his 80s, is still in possession of all of his faculties. However, having known him for well over two decades, I'm not entirely sure that he's ever been in possession of said faculties. He's John, and he's certainly not a stupid man, I should make that very clear, but he is very much an eccentric character. The same eccentric, on-the-ball character, albeit maybe a little more forgetful these days, as he was 25 years ago. Even if him referring to me at the end of a phone conversation as, my love, did set certain alarm bells ringing. To be fair, he did realise his mistake pretty quickly, as he stuttered to try and cover up and get back on track, although couldn't admit it for obvious reasons. The only time I do remember calling John's faculties into question was whilst he was stopping over at our house in Birmingham, on his way up north somewhere, either for a wrestling trip or a speedway meeting, I can't quite remember now, and whilst chatting, the subject of his incredible autograph collection came up, and specifically what will become of it when John passes on. Morbid, I know, but John was quite comfortable talking about it, and I was very pleased when he told me that he had now arranged for the collection to be left to some sort of entertainment society when the time comes. Although I wasn't quite so keen to then hear him say that he had pretty much all but agreed to give his house away for free after his passing, to some complete random who had come knocking on his door one day. I really wanted to ask if the bloke had offered John some magic beans to sweeten the deal, as it really did sound like something straight out of a fairy tale. But despite obviously raising concerns with John, not only about the legality of such a transaction, 
but also as to why this complete random would deserve to inherit John's house after his passing. After talking to him for some time about it, and hearing him give his reasons, I had to accept that John had considered everything, and made a reasoned, albeit odd in my opinion, decision in his mind to go ahead with this. John may have agreed to give his house away after his passing, but he wasn't quite so amenable when, a few years ago now, someone tried to break into the house. As well as the inside of the house being in disrepair, John's garden at the time was also massively overgrown, to the point where the huge mass of brambles there made it virtually impossible to access via any means, as the prospective burglar found out. Having tried to gain access to the house via the garden, and failed completely, the burglar had given up and instead broke into John's garage and caused some damage there. This was obviously a serious situation, but as with many other things, when you add John Short into the mix, the potential for some sort of comedic situation rises considerably, and that would prove to be the case here too. After the attempted break-in at the house, and the successful break-in of his garage, John called the police, who subsequently went round to take a look, and asked John a few questions about what had happened. After talking to John in the house, and having a look round the garage, they wanted to go through to the garden and investigate there, but were unable to gain access via John's back door, the one with the aforementioned large crack, pardon the expression. Rather than being impeded by the snow on this occasion, John's back door was instead completely jammed shut as a result of the massive brambles on the other side, so therefore the officers tried instead to gain access via the gate. Unfortunately though, this was also jammed shut and completely inaccessible, again as a result of the years, or possibly even decades by this point, of overgrown brambles behind it. The officers clearly felt a need to investigate the garden, so for better or worse, one of them decided to climb over the gate to try and gain access that way. Unfortunately though, said officer then slipped and fell into the mass of brambles, and ended up caught up, completely stuck in there for about 20 minutes. I could only imagine the scene, in full comedic farce, as John described it to me over the phone later that day. Again, as I say, when you add John into the mix, something supposedly routine instantly becomes a potential scene of chaos and comedy. When the police officer was finally liberated somehow, somewhat ironically, from his Bramble prison, I think they pretty much, understandably, just gave up and called it a day after that. Still, I'd imagine that despite the pain from all the Brambles, they must have secretly been impressed with John's somewhat unconventional anti-burglar system, and who knows, perhaps in the intervening years, the various security firms of Bristol will have got to know about this, and have started moving away from the traditional technological approach in favour of a more plant-based solution, as seems to be the fashion these days. But anyway. So that was short stories for this time. For the next two episodes, short stories and our other regular features will be taking a break. 
But don't worry, there's still a lot more to come from John, both from my experiences with him over the years, and those of my guests. As in episode 25, long-time CSF referee Mark Rowell talks about various incidents involving the old man of the fudge, which you really won't want to miss. But more about that in episode 25. It's now time for the fourth and final part of my interview with Tony Nadette. And we pick things up this time, talking about some more of Tony's experiences of refereeing for various promotions around Britain. Enjoy. As well as sort of all working for Wild at that time, we've mentioned a little bit briefly already, there was a little sort of band of us going around working on all these other shows at the time in Scotland. And, you know, various other places as well. What are some of your memories of working on some of them other shows, you know, for the other promotions in Scotland? Yeah, I mean, mixed memories. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I suppose for me, Wild was the sort of a home promotion, if that makes sense. So that was sure. where I felt I've got my base, albeit I might go and do a show for someone else. And you might even see people that are on the Wild shows, all uh-huh. or some. But it still wasn't the same. It still didn't feel as comfortable, perhaps in some cases. You know, Ross Watson, Kid Fight, started promoting. Uh And, you know, I thought that he put on some pretty good shows. He had a mixture of what I would call the Wild and BCW roster, plus Mm -hmm. some of the folk from down south that were, you know, getting a name for themselves. And amongst internet fans, he had a nice balanced show, actually, all considered, and some very nice venues too. I remember working in places like Largs for Ross. I thought that was a decent venue. I remember actually working a show for Scottish Wrestling Alliance. And it's funny because I remember when I got there, the first word the promoter said to me was, well, I didn't think you'd be coming since Carol wasn't coming. (laughs) (laughs) And how are you as well? Um, (laughs) What had happened was it was billed as this sort of a Scottish Super Show, I suppose, yeah. purely because, well, one, the venue was quite historic. It was the Kelvin Hall that Spinner right, has yeah. mentioned. And also, it was almost like, although it was an SWA show, there was various promotions there. And I think you were supposed to send a wild team along. And when I turned up, I'd been booked via Adam Shame, I'm sure, at one of Rossi's shows. And when I rocked up, it was Conscience that said, well, I didn't think you'd be here since Carol's not going to be here. <laughs> so I don't know if you and Conscience and or anyone else had had a dispute of some kind. But well, uh... I'll tell you what it was. We were backstage at a show in East Kilbride. And he was on that particular show. And he came to me and sort of laid out the concept for this show that he wanted to do. You know, said he wanted all the promotions involved. You know, wanted a team from all the different promotions. And I said, well, okay. But then, at the end of it, he said, but I'm going to have a big wage bill, there's going to be lots of guys on the show, so basically I can't really afford to pay you. <laughs> I think his exact words to me were, oh, you know, I'll get you some beers, you know, whatever, you know, you know, it'll be a good time, you know, and all of this. And Right, okay then. <laughs> I mean, obviously that's the problem in itself, you know, that's not going to lead to this happening. <laughs> but my biggest bone of contention was Spinner's wife, Michelle, as I'm sure you remember, was at the time a singer. Mm-hmm. And Conscience had brought her in to sing on this show. I think she sang either the National Anthem or 
something along them lines, like at the start of the show, to open the show. And my bone of contention was, no disrespect to Michelle whatsoever, but if you can afford to pay someone to come and sing, then you can afford to pay the boys. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing, isn't it? It's not about being able to afford, probably. It's about choosing when and where they want to pay something. Well, this is the thing, yeah. And it did pull a decent crowd as well, bear in mind. And it didn't involve imports. So, yeah, I think it was more of a choice selection thing, wasn't it? I can't really remember the ins and outs of the show because it was one of the few shows I did in Scotland where there was at least one other referee. I think there was actually two other referees that night, probably because they thought I wasn't going to turn up. But uh, <laughs> one of them was, oh, I forget his name, I'm assuming it was Jamie now, Jam? Oh, Jam, yeah. Yeah, he was one of them for sure. I can't remember if there was another one, and if there was who that was. But it was probably one of my easiest nights in a sense. I'm sure I refereed Spinner's match with Magic, maybe one or two other matches, but maybe one of them involved being the outside referee for a crazy stunt show with a ladder. You know, it was quite an odd night for me. It wasn't as involved. You know, a lot of the time when you're refereeing in British shows, you're the only referee. Uh-huh. It wasn't like at the time when you watched WWE, there would be five refs on SmackDown and five on Raw. It was like the old WWF days of you might have one or two refs tops. And typically it was one, and I often found I didn't know what to do with myself if it was one of more than one referee. Uh-huh. But what was interesting, because I had more time, I was able to just sort of sit back and chat to people and monitor and observe things. And I remember, and I'm not slagging them for this, I'm really not, but the Kelvin Hall's a historic venue, and it was probably the biggest venue that a lot of the folk involved, particularly the SWA guys, had worked at that time. And it really felt as if you'd been transported from Glasgow to Madison Square Garden, New York on WrestleMania Day, because there was people walking about, not looking straight ahead or down, but up at the ceiling and stuff, as if, you know, they were in this massive arena. And let's be blunt, it's still ultimately a leisure centre we were talking about. Uh And, you know, it was a big moment for them, but I just didn't feel part of that moment. It was their moment, not mine. I'm watching them enjoy their moment and go, oh, wow, look at this, look at that. And then at some point in proceedings, I bump into Mike Musso and Mayford Reynolds. <laughs> and they were the exact same as me. We were kind of saying, like, have you noticed how everyone's acting today? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, they're acting as if they're in, you know, the O2 Arena in London or something like that. And it's WrestleMania. And yeah, it was quite surreal. And that show, I mean, it seemed to go well. The fans went home happy and all that good stuff. But at the end of the day, it was ultimately just another show, wasn't it? And Uh I turned up because I'd agreed a price and I said I'd be there. How did you enjoy your beer that night? (laughs) No, I get paid in cash, Carl. I remember at the end of the night having to go and ask for it. That was lovely. But it's all about how we perceive something, isn't it? And what it means to us. I mean, they had some really good guys, I felt. The ones that come to mind right away are people like Scott Rennick, for example. Um, Yeah, I loved Scotty. I thought he was a great guy. I did enjoy being around him. Yeah, people like him. Adam was a nice guy. He was fun to be around. Yeah, Um, him as well, yeah. But yeah, it's just so many people you meet. And as I said initially, Carl, you know, there was a real us versus them thing when I started at BCW. Uh But then when you meet most of these people, when you speak to them, they're absolutely brand new. People like Adam, Rep... Scott, they're really good guys. It was just that they had their own little promotion and Colin had his little promotion. That was the only thing that was going on. Do you remember the absolute chaos 
that was involved in the first ICW show for Mark <laughs> Dallas. I remember bits of it, so I certainly worked it. I was in the pub beforehand with Grogan, I'm sure. And me. And you, but I was going to say, actually, I think that was a day where I was in the pub and various people were coming and going, but I was always there. <laughs> <laughs> you were having your own sort of come and find me some sanctuary moment. And it was a bit like that sometimes where one of us would sort of plant ourselves and, you know, you might be there all day, you might come and go, but there was always someone keeping the base. I'm pretty sure the only reason I left is because we had to go and do the ring. Yeah, that might be it. And I might have been um, horrible that day and not joined you. But, uh... I'll tell you what, if you did stay there, you definitely made the right choice. Because I don't know if you remember the absolute palaver that it took to get the ring into the building in the first place. Because the hall that we were actually doing the show in was up on the first floor. And we'd got that ring at the time that had the planks. You know, so it's not boards, which you can quite easily, you know, sort of manoeuvre about the place. It's long planks. So the only way for us to load in is going up this staircase, which is sort of split in the middle. In the middle, it's got a landing where there's this really expensive looking display case with this beautiful crystal glass and whatever else and trophies and whatever else inside it. So we've got to walk these planks up the first part of these stairs, then stand them perfectly up on their hind legs sort of thing, and then try and manoeuvre it up the, like, you know, you've got one set of the steps, and then you turn, and there's a bend, and you go up the other side. We've got to do that with these planks, not boards, which would have been much more easy to manoeuvre up the stairs. We've got these planks, and they're so big, you know, as we're taking these up there, we're just about skimming this glass cabinet every single time and there's no way to avoid it because we just cannot physically lift them any higher and it took us hours and hours and hours to get the ring into this place it was just such a delicate operation i mean if we'd smashed that for a start we couldn't carry on taking the stuff in you know because there would have been glass everywhere but we would have also damaged this and we had pressure on us as well. You know, there were people from the venue saying, be careful, you don't damage the display cabinet and all of this. And it just took hours and hours and hours to get the ring in. And it ended up delaying the start of the show. I'm guessing you just stayed in the pub, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to think I did, because I can't even remember the late start. Maybe that was useful for me if I was in the pub too late. <laughs> yeah, no, no that, that was the thing. Nobody told you that the show was starting, because it wasn't. I mean, so much of this was like comedy gold, you know, see if you're a fan of stuff like, you know, the old BBC comedies like Only Fools and Horses, uh-huh. Porridge, um, whatever. It was like that a lot of the time. It was like living through a comedy, wasn't it? And, and that's the thing, I, in that instance, it was actually like that Chandelier episode of Fools and Horses where <laughs> and one false move is going to, you know, break this thing worth thousands of pounds. And because of the length of these planks, you know, it's a 16-foot ring. So we have to sort of stand them up completely vertical because that's the only way to turn them so that we can go up the other side of the stairs. And it was just absolutely ridiculous. And even with however many people, we had tons and tons of people helping because I remember there were lots of hangers on. But even with that, it still took hours and hours to get the ring in. And that's one of the shows after we'd finished me and Dave had to sort of develop this little routine that we'd developed where we would sit in the van and we'd put on the stereo and it would be 
always look on the bright side of life. And we'd listen to this two or three times and we'd sing along with it, you know, at the top of our voices with the stereo blaring because it was the only way to sort of claw back some kind of sanity, you know. <laughs> and of course, I'm sure that show was one where there was maybe 50 punters in tops, wasn't there? <laughs> you know? I remember it not being a bumper crowd. I don't know exactly how many people were there. Yeah, because well, I think I was booked for one more, but I didn't make it in the end. For whatever reason, I can't remember now. But I certainly worked that first show for him. Yeah. I certainly seem to stay in the pub for most of the excitement as well. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some of those days were funny because be at that pub, I don't have a clue what it was called. I don't even know if I'd be able to take you to it right now. Uh-huh. But there was certain pubs in certain towns, you know, like Hudson's and East School Bride was our regular one for East School Bride shows, wasn't oh. it? I remember some shenanigans when they switched the... Do you remember they used to have them two tiny little dressing rooms at the back by the stage? Mm-hmm. Well, later on, they switched it so that the dressing rooms were actually upstairs on the other side of the building, and we actually got changed in what was, during the day, the courtroom. Yep. <laughs> and that certainly never led to any potentially arrestable offences or anything. <laughs> yes. Probably the less said that's better about that, really. (laughs) Yeah, I I think we'll not go into too much detail on that. Moving away from the shows in Scotland, you did also, I mean, you mentioned earlier on going down and doing some shows for WZW in Newcastle and main event wrestling for a guy called Dan Fitch. Yeah, that's the one. What memories have you got of doing them shows? Well, WZW was really doing them a favour. Their ordinary referee, stroke referees, just weren't around for whatever reason. I'd done a show for you, I think, the night before, and I'd agreed to do the show for them the next day, pretty much that day, you know, with very little notice. Uh And the idea was I would meet Liam and Darkseid at Hamilton bus station, I think it was, with Liam driving there and picking us up. And I just remember the road trip being quite funny. I never really got to know Darkseid too well, but on that one, he was in the passenger seat, Liam's driving, and he was just constantly fucking about with Liam, you know, <laughs> messing about with the gear stick while he's driving on the motorway, changing the songs as he wanted at various points, uh, really testing Liam's patience, which was amusing, and <laughs> albeit a danger to my safety as well, since I was in the car. I don't remember ever seeing Liam getting agitated. I think he got there that day, or he was getting close. <laughs> <laughs> And in fairness, when you're trying to drive down a motorway to England <laughs> and someone's fucking about with a gear stick. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that would do it. Yeah. But, you know, the show itself, yeah, fuck, it was what it was. I mean, the WZW guys, again, as I said earlier on, I would say I'm an introvert broadly and they were all extroverts broadly. Uh-huh. But it was really just doing them a good turn. Main event wrestling were almost like a mark promotion insofar as... They wanted to bring in some imports and then use the rest as local talent. The one time I worked for them, they'd advertise various people to turn up, such as Mark Jindrak, Vampiro, etc. But in the end, it was people like Shark Boy, Joe Legend, Honky Tonk Man was there. That was maybe the first time I worked with Joe, and he was just such a nice guy from the moment I met him. Like, you know that old saying, don't meet your heroes and all that? Bear in mind, I am a big fan of him, and he was just totally superb. And he always was, because I worked with him a few more times at BCW and then over in Italy for a couple of weeks. And he's just one of these guys that's an all-round good egg, ultimately. 
he likes to help people, but not in a patronising way. So the way he says things, it's not, oh, you got that wrong. It's more along the lines of, oh, I saw that and that was really good. Oh, but by the way, here's how I might have done it. You know, there's a mm-hmm. different slant on things. And also, just in general, just a nice guy to be around and really talented. So I was really lucky and fortunate to get to work with him. And that showdown in Newcastle got to work with Shark Boy. That's very much a proper gimmick. And it's a kind of a ha-ha gimmick. I mean, funnily enough, actually, the guy behind the mask, he was really dark in my mind. <laughs> he was like, he seemed really depressed. And it was almost like, you know, he'd be the DJ on a Quentin Tarantino film. You know, the really slow, <laughs> boring voice. Um, it was really unanimated versus his gimmick, which was Shark Boy and, you know, a bit of a fan favourite. Kind of surprising he never made it to WWE, albeit understand that he did get a massive payout from some Disney or Universal film who breached his trademark so maybe he doesn't need to worry about wrestling anymore (laughs) and yeah you meet these kind of folks and at the time you had these super shows that Alex would run or 1PW would run and there was regular fixtures in them and other shows such as the Spuds of the World he's from your neck of the woods isn't he the Midlands he is Um, yeah what's that chap called that he trained under is it Kevin Neal Kevin Um, O'Neill yeah yeah, because I first worked with Spud when he was up for calling. Kev had came up with Spud and a guy called Jack Storm. Spud obviously made it not only onto like the premier UK shows, if you like, getting a decent wage, no doubt, for working 1PW, etc. But he went on to work in America for TNA and WWE. But I actually thought that guy Jack was as good as, or maybe even better than Spud. But it might just be that he decided it wasn't for him anymore. You know, as an individual, he didn't want to do it anymore or whatnot. Or maybe it was his look, he didn't get the same opportunities. But yeah, you get to meet some of these folk. And Seamus and Madman Manson, I met them down in Newcastle. I'd possibly worked with Seamus before for Colin. But they really were a lifesaver for me down there. Because what was happening is we'd done the show on a Saturday night. And then we were staying over and all going our separate ways on a Sunday morning. And I was supposed to be sharing a room with Darren Burridge, who I'd not met before that day. Not that that's a problem. You know what wrestling's like? You just grab a couch or grab a pew somewhere. But I couldn't find him at the end of the show. And I ended up getting back to the hotel with Seamus and Madman Manson. And the receptionist at first gave, you know, Seamus and Madman Manson their room key because they were sharing together. So off they went and I said, I'll see you later. And then what happened was the lady said, oh, the guy that you're sharing with already got the key. All right, can I get another key then? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, okay, what room number am I in then? It's now, you know, half 11, 12 at night. I'm knackered, just fed up probably as well, because I'm down in Newcastle. And <laughs> basically went to this room, knocked on the door, no answer. <laughs> went down the stairs, said to the lady again, uh, having obviously had to wait in the queue again because other people are checking in, uh-huh. joined the queue, get to the same lady, explain there was no answer, so you've got to give me another key. Oh, I can't. You've already had your one key, and the system indicates that someone is in that room, so if you just go and try again, okay. <laughs> so went up, knocked on the door, no answer. I'm like, Christ, what the hell do I do here? So I had a flashback to when I was checking in behind Seamus and Madman Manson. I'm sure this is how it panned out. I remember the room number. So I go and knock on their door and explain what's happening to them. 
and they were like, oh my god, this is crazy. Like, leave your bags here, go and tell that receptionist what needs to be done now, but don't worry, as a worst case, you're in here with us, you know, one of us can, you know, sleep in the floor and all this chat. And I think they genuinely meant it. You know, they were really, really nice guys. Uh-huh. And to think Seamus would go on to be one of those, I suppose, like Drew, a proper WWE superstar, you know, really a, a big name in the business. And he deserves it, because he was a really nice guy, at least to me anyway. But eventually, one way or the other, I'd left my case with those guys. I go back down, and at that point I see Darren Burridge, I think, or something happens. Maybe the lady gave me another room key. So I finally get to go in the room. But yeah, I mean, some of this stuff was just a total faff. You know, you're supposed to be sharing rooms with people you've never met, and you don't know that that's the case, and then you can't find them, and the hotel won't give you the key. And Uh that's the stuff you forget up until you bring up, oh, Who's Shark Boy? <laughs> yeah, been there, done that. Got many T-shirts. Would we do it today? Probably not. But um, <laughs> you know, at the time, you know, we were young guys. Yeah, absolutely. It was just that was the working environment, wasn't it? Yeah. As well as doing those shows for WZW and main event wrestling in the Northeast, I remember quite specifically a coach trip that you and I went on. A little expedition, well, a big expedition, going from the bus station in Glasgow all the way down to Melksham for a CSF show in January 2005. What do you remember about, I mean, firstly, that trip was an experience all of itself, but what do you remember about that experience of going down and seeing CSF in action? Yeah, I mean, the show itself was brilliant. Bear in mind the backdrop to this is from day one of turning up at BCW in East Kilbride. People are already talking about Melksham and CSF uh-huh. because I actually think my first day there at the BCW training, I think Colin had taken a van load or a car load of people down. You know, I think it was probably Colin and Pendus and stuff like that had been down, Drew, no doubt, for CSF. So it was the thing that everyone was talking about. Then, as weeks go on, you come up and starting to hear about your experiences and all that good stuff of the riot and all that, and hiding in dressing rooms. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, you know, Henry, do you remember Henry? I'm sure he told me a bit about oh, being down there. Yeah, Henry used to come down with Colin. He was a nice guy. He kind of disappeared fairly sharp in the big scheme of things. I like to think he's doing okay. He was always a nice enough guy to me. But yeah, I remember when I went down to CSF, notwithstanding the travel, which no doubt we'll mention in a moment, the show itself was brilliant. I was taken aback at just the production standards and stuff. It was much slicker yeah. than what I expected. Really nicely run. Bear in mind, I'm not working. I was there as a fan. You were working, but I was sat beside the production guys or just behind them or something like that and right. watched the show. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, really captured audience. Bit of a fright at one point. Someone was running late and whether it was a rib or not, someone said, can't we get Tony in that tag match? <laughs> and I was like, this has got to be a rib. But then the words going round such as, yeah, what size of a boot do you take, Tony, and all this? But good news, the guy turned up. But no, it was good to actually go to a show as a fan as well, because I'd not been to any British shows as a fan since, you know, the mid-90s. The quality was really good. Always enjoyed watching people like Stu Odyssey wrestle. So yeah, I mean, it was a great night. But I suppose, again, like any of these other things, you always think of what went on in the journey to get there and stuff. And it was a long old trip from Glasgow to Melksham, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I remember it being a long old haul, you know. I mean, we, you know, we were chatting and stuff, but I mean, you know, I'm no lightweight. And um, 
how can I put this politely? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm allowed to say these things as a fat man, you know, I'm not being, well, I am being fattest because I am the fattest, but yeah, squashed together on a regular sort of coach seat for, I don't even know how long the journey was. I remember the coach being stopped and searched at one point. Um, and I can't remember. Can you remember what they were searching for or like what was going on there? Well, I don't know, and I didn't know at the time either, what they were looking for. It was the middle of the night. You know, we travelled from something like 10pm. We got on the bus in Glasgow. Yeah, it was, it was an overnight one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an overnight. So um, some of the facts are a bit fuzzy. But what I certainly remember was seeing the police and their dog. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, please, God, don't let Carl have anything on him here. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're going to be guilty by association, whatever's going on here. (laughs) With the benefit of hindsight, I think they might have been looking for a person rather than a substance, the way that they were on and off the coach. But I certainly just remember sat there thinking, please, Carol, I've never known you to have anything too dodgy about you. I'm glad you added that bit. (laughs) So, yeah, it was certainly interesting, the coach down. And then, you know, it's not straightforward to get to Melksham because I think we ended up getting off at Bristol, wasn't it? And then from Bristol. Yeah, you have to go via Bristol to Bath to Melksham. Mm -hmm. And... What happened was, once we got there, and I can't remember the sequence of events, but we end up at the B&B that people are going to stay over at that night. Uh-huh. And there was another team that had come down from Scotland, wasn't there? That's uh, right. With Drew, Charles Boddington, and whoever else was there. Oh, I think Pendus and Impact were there as well. Yeah, so there was a fair amount of people, and I remember, again, bonus ball centre moments. I remember us all being crammed in this one room. In this B and B, there's at yeah. least like eight of us at this point. I'm sure. Well, we, we we actually stayed at that place a few times, and we shared that room quite a few times. My kind of abiding memory of that is going in to get a shower, and when I came back out again in the toilet there, the toilet stroke shower room stroke bathroom sort of thing, they'd got this liquid soap dispenser. You know, you squeeze the stuff out, and as it sort of forms on your hand, it basically looks like fresh semen. Classy establishment, you know, um, as per usual. So I put some of this stuff on my hand and I come out of the bathroom and I start advancing towards Graham, Charles Boddington, with this stuff in my hand, pretending that I'd just been in there. I'd been in there, you know, sort of making the noises, pretending. (laughs) And coming out saying I just had a wank and I was going to smear the results of it all over him sort of thing, which, you know, gives you a good indication of the sort of classy banter we had on a regular basis so he starts running and i'm chasing him round this room and we're going round and round and round and because it was a family room and there were so many people staying there was this camp style bed set up it was like a like one of these pull out things that's like got a really thin thing and there's like a thin mattress on top and it's basically just there as an add-on sort of thing mm-hmm I'm chasing him round, and he sort of dives over there. You know, dives over, lands on his feet, carries on running. I go to dive over this bed as well. Realise halfway that I'm not quite as nimble as he is. <laughs> sort of pull out halfway, but as I pull out, I've sort of stepped on the bed, and I've gone all the way through the bed and the mattress, and I'm right, you know, at the floor with the bed around my knees. 
And... Just another day out, isn't it? Yeah, j- j- <laughs> just another day at the circus. Yeah. You know. And I'm there, I've still got this liquid soap all over me, which I'm trying to sort of manage as I'm trying to extract myself from this now destroyed bed. Yeah, that was the last time we stayed there for a little while. <laughs> as well as refereeing international talent at BCW and other places in the UK, you also went on a tour with New Wrestling Evolution, or NWE, in Italy. First of all, I mean, how did that all come about in the first place? And secondly, I know there's going to be an absolute ton of stuff to get into here, but what memories do you have of that time and the people that you met and worked with there and the experiences you had over there? Well, in terms of how did I get involved with them, I think I know the answer, but I'm not sure. Let me explain. (laughs) (laughs) So that was an example of a promotion where I sent them essentially a cold email just saying, I'm a referee in Scotland. Here's a link to my website. I'd love to work with you. Please get in touch if the opportunity ever arises. You know, something along those lines. Can't remember the particulars, but that was a gist. I would do that with, you know, promotions that looked interesting. I don't even remember when exactly that would have been. I think it was in 2005 I sent that speculative email. Fast forward to around, let's say, June 2006 or thereabouts, I received an email, not a reply to that initial email, but just a random email from a chap called Silvano, and he said that he was the booker for the NWE in terms of the European talent that they use, uh-huh. and he was wanting to check my availability for their big summer tour in August. So I was a bit taken aback by this because, you know, I think that was one of the few responses you got to such a cold email. And we get back and forth with email communication. I don't think we ever spoke in the phone. We talked about speaking in the phone, but for one reason or another, we didn't. I think we missed calls each way or whatever. But it was probably good because, you know, Silvano's English could be as good as my Italian, it seemed, (laughs) when we were emailing back and forth. But we finally got to a point where they said, okay, well, we'd like you to do the tour. We'll get a contract pulled together. And just for the benefit of people are listening, it wasn't commonplace to receive an actual physical contract in British wrestling. You're giving away the secrets now. I know, I'm like breaking the magician's code here or something. (laughs) But uh, it was almost equivalent of I'm a labourer doing cash in hand jobs. That's more akin to the British wrestling side of things. But we'll move on from there. So, sure enough, they sent over this contract by email, and it wasn't like the type that you now know that the WWE dish out to people like Drew or whatever, but it was still a proper document with all these clauses and stuff, setting out all their requirements and what they would do and what they'd expect of me and stuff like that. And, I mean, quite literally, it's stuff like, you know, no compete clause. You're not allowed to work a show in Italy, 60 days either side of our tour and all this good stuff. Uh-huh. So they clearly had just taken this standard contract that they give to the real stars and just, you know, added my name and stuff into it. But yeah, like I got that, I looked at it and at that point in time I'd been in this job I was in at the time for about three months and it was my first real job. And I remember thinking, I really want to do this because, you know, I've always been a massive WWE fan and uh-huh. New Wrestling Evolution were mostly using talent from WWE WCW in Japan, etc. It was pretty much a full-on superstar promotion with very little Italian talent on board. 
and maybe a handful of British or European talent to support. And I thought this sounds like my dreams come true to have this experience because I'd already got to the point where I knew my days are numbered in this. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's going to be three months. I don't know if it's going to be a year and a half. In the end, it turned out it was closer to about a year and a half, give or take. But I knew that I wanted to focus on my real life career rather than doing the weekend warrior stuff for much longer. I spoke to family and friends and if I spoke to a friend in wrestling about it, at first the response was LOL. <laughs> they just assumed I was winding them up. And I was like, no, seriously, they're asking me if I want to go over and get paid to go and do these shows with all these WWE, WCW, Japanese guys, get all my hotels paid for, all the flights paid for, all my meals paid for, plus a wage on top. <laughs> you know, it did sound too good to be true. Uh-huh. But I decided to go for it, even though some of my family were saying, well, you've just started this new job, don't know if it's a good time to do it. But I asked for some time off, and this lady, Emmeline, she's now passed on. She was in charge of operations, and she said, well, you know what, Tony, we're already 61 people down <laughs> for that fortnight, or <laughs> two and a half weeks, three weeks, whatever it was. What's another one? You may as well have it. <laughs> so... I got the okay from work and I returned the contract. What was a bit annoying about the contract was I had to fax it back to them. And this is 2006. Like <laughs> Even then, fax machines weren't a big thing. Uh-huh. And I think I ended up using the one from the work, which would have been funny. I won't go into details, but just based on that employer at the time, if they knew anything about them, they might have jumped a little bit seeing a fax from them. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, signed up to do the tour... And between then and August, started to just follow them a bit and see what was getting advertised and also doing British shows and bumping into the odd person that was going to be on the tour as well, such as Lisa Fury was going to be on the tour. Lisa was a brilliant worker. Again, one of these people was probably just ahead of her time or doing what she was doing really well at the wrong time. You know, she'd been around now. She'd be in the WWE, no Uh doubts about it. I'd worked with people like Hade before, Hade Vanson. He was going to be on the tour, I was told. And there was also people I hadn't worked with, or had just worked with once, um, Courtney in Newcastle, for example. I'd never worked with Flatliner before. He was a guy from down in Portsmouth who had quite a comedy act going, you know, for yeah. his gimmick. And we were the four or five Brits that were going over. And the deal was, you know, as time went on, they booked the flights for me. And then it was just go, like going to any other job. Instead of getting a bus to Stirling, it was getting to Glasgow Airport, flying to London, then flying to the south of Italy to go on this tour. It was odd because it was unusual for me to be involved in the flying stuff. I did holidays and all that, but, you know, I'd never done Irish whip wrestling like Drew, for example. So he was Uh used to going over to Dublin or wherever it is all the time. So this was all a new experience to me. And I remember being quite cautious and saying to Silvano, oh, do I not need a working visa? Do I not need X? Do I not need Y? Do I not need Z? And so Vano basically said, just go. Flatliner's been before. I think Hayde had been before. They'll know the script. Just, you know, hang about with them once you arrive in Italy. And I remember getting reassurance from that. And it was only once I met them all at the airport, I looked at all of us and I thought, we're going to get huckled by the Italian customs. If it's not the UK customs, huckle is... Because we had two girls that looked like page three models, essentially. And that's not disrespectful, but they looked like models. Uh-huh. You had Flatliner, who was, you know, he looked like he was on massive amount of steroids. Whether he was or wasn't, is neither here nor there. 
and he had this sort of a skinhead plus the dyed white moustache like Scott Steiner had, you know, that sort of a goatee thing. Yeah. Then you had Ed, who just looked like a normal bloke, but he turned up at the airport in a cowboy hat. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly started having these little mini panics in my head. But then you just go with it, got over there, and, you know, we arrived at the airport once we were through passport control. There was someone stood there with, you know, the sign saying NWE Wrestling with the logo on it all looking very formal and we went out and there was a coach just for us five <laughs> plus actually joe legend he'd arrived from germany at or around the same time so there's half a dozen of us on this big coach that took us from the airport i can't remember the name of the airport it was in the calabria region of italy which is down south at the boot as people call it and yeah. you know this coach took us from there to the hotel we got to the hotel and it was really just us around all day even the Italians weren't around, or if they were around, they didn't identify themselves to us. Uh-huh. The idea was that we would all meet the next morning at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, I think. And, you know, that was us. So, like, you know, for that first day, it was just all the Brits wandering around, having a chat and all that. And as time went on, the Italians appeared and some of the Americans appeared. And by the next morning, the whole crew were there. I remember we had this team meeting set for 10 a.m., I think. But before that, you know, if I saw someone that I recognised, I'd go and do the wrestler handshake thing, <laughs> you know, to show my respect. <laughs> and I would, you know, shake their hand and almost do a bow, a curtsy type thing. You know, I'm showing you that you're more important than me. I remember it was a mixed bag. You know, some people were really friendly straight off the bat. Other people were a little bit grumpy. But that said, the Americans had had, you know, 40 hours of flying in a couple of cases. And, yeah. and some of them had lost all their gear <laughs> on the way over to Italy. <laughs> And it was one of those things, actually. The first show, um, Matt Morgan, he was a massive guy. He was billed as seven foot, I think, but he was legitimately at least six foot seven or six foot eight. You know, a really big guy. He wrestled in his denims and so did Vampiro. He got a name for himself in Mexico and WCW predominantly. But, you know, I remember before we even had that first team meeting, one of the Italian guys handed me this glossy brochure and folder thing with all the NWE images and stuff. It was like getting a souvenir program handed to you. But inside, there was also the itinerary for the tour. And I remember just going through it thinking, this is really impressive. You know, that I've never seen anything like this before. And I finally found at some point there was the running order for the scripts for the televised shows. Because although it was a two-week tour and it was mostly summer-type resorts, you know, the Italian equivalent of Blackpool or Great Yarmouth, and they had planned to tape a couple of the shows for television and DVD. So I'm looking at the script of the running order for the first show, and I get to the end, and then broken English, essentially, it's saying Vampiro is going to kill the referee. (laughs) 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 And putting two and two together, liking the odd pun, I thought, I don't think this is going to be Ricardo that's getting killed off Vampiro. I think there's a chance it might be me. So I've not even met everyone and I already know I'm getting killed off and I'll probably never do a tour again. But that said, in the background, I knew this was a one-off in my mind. I wasn't planning to make it a long-term thing, but just as well, because neither were they. But uh, (laughs) it was a real eye-opener, you know, just meeting all the characters. So some people were super cool straight away. You had people like a guy that works as various names. I think he works as Matt Cross just now. At the time, he was billing himself as M-Dog 20. He's also worked as Spartan 3000. He's a bit of a journeyman now. He's probably about 40 years old. 
and he was just so nice and down to earth straight away. It was great to meet him. He'd formerly been a gymnast, and I got the impression, putting two and two together and reading between the lines, and maybe he actually mentioned it in passing at some point that he could have been in the Olympic team for the US for gymnastics, uh-huh. but he decided, or it had been decided for him that he just wasn't cutting it, either his choice or theirs, but he suddenly decided, well, I'm more into wrestling anyway. And he was one of those, what I would call, Ring of Honor type guys, doing all the sort of flippy floppy type Cirque du Soleil stuff. But he was really, really good at it, incredible at it. But you also met these people that you're familiar with from telly, such as Rikishi, who, first time I met him, I remember, he reminded me of Polly from Goodfellas. He was very stern at first, it seemed. Not rude, just a bit stern. And I just thought, oh, well, I'll just see if I can get to know him a bit as the tour goes on. But went up and introduced myself to Vampiro and said, hi, I'm Tony, nice to meet you. Put my hand out and he just started ranting at me about his lost luggage, (laughs) (laughs) which was lovely. So, yeah, it was interesting. But then we had the team meeting and we were told, here's what the script is. You know, you've got all your itineraries now. Just go out, have fun. Don't do anything too dangerous. We're here to do the two-week tour. We don't want any injuries or hassles. Just go out there, have fun, and you know, make the most of the experience. And then we went and done the first show that night. And from there, it was, I think, one or two shows were cancelled because of other promoters that they used hadn't done the right thing for promoting it. And it wasn't worth our while going to the venues, ultimately. But over the two weeks, we did a good few shows. And it was a real eye-opener working with these guys that are predominantly from that WWE stable. Certainly a bit different to what I'd been used to. Uh-huh. Who were some of the people that were easy to work with, shall we say? Who were some of the more challenging ones to work with out there? Well, the most challenging one for me was probably Vampiro, and that stems from how he was backstage as well. He was not only a woof, but he wanted to be a woof. So to give you an example, on that first night, the first show we're at, it was in what I would call a proper arena. So, you know, there was, like, too much space. You go from situations like the bonus ball centre where you can't move an inch to the point where you're in this arena where, you know, it's probably got a local football team or ice hockey or basketball team that use it and just loads of different dressing rooms and locker rooms. Uh And I went into this room that was completely bare, completely empty, sat there, put my stuff down, and I've just opened my case and Vampiro appeared. And he said, I was going to get drenched in this room. And I was like, oh, cool, do you want me to leave then? And he just gave me a dirty look and walked away. (laughs) And I was like, okay. But then he appeared again, you know, about 10 minutes later with his Sony Walkman, you know, with a CD in it. Uh And he was holding a few CDs, and the one I could see was Oasis, What's the Story, Morning Glory, which, you know, most Brits will know of. It was very popular here. I dare say in America, Mexico, Canada, Japan, not so popular or commonplace. And I said to him, oh, I love that CD. I've also got this. Do you like this? You know, just trying to be really friendly. Yeah. And he just didn't want to engage at all. But ironically, over the course of the fortnight, and then when I looked into it afterwards, I think he's a chap that at certain points in his life, he likes to play the martyr, the victim. Oh, you know, people don't know me. They don't want to get to know me. But I found the opposite to be true. He didn't want people to have a kind of a common bond or goal with him. And that wasn't just me. It turned out it was the same with even, you know, probably the other Americans felt they had the same issues with him. 
Matt and John, Matt Morgan and John Heidenreich, I refereed their matches for a good few nights. They were working together on most, if not all, of the house shows, and I was always refing their stuff. They were fun, but, you know, sometimes it could be awkward because you've got these two giants going at it, and if one thing's not in place as the other thinks it should be, they get really heated with each other. <laughs> and I remember one night they were legit about to have a proper fight backstage, and both of them are just shy of seven foot. <laughs> and got these two guys about to legit go for it. And I was lucky in a sense because I had another match to ref. But, you know, people were getting a wee bit anxious about all this. These two seven foot guys about to start killing each other over, you know, was it two elbows or three we should have done? You know, it was, <laughs> you know, in the cold light of day, it didn't matter. And it was a house show and no one would see it. And the punters didn't know what you're planning and doing, so they wouldn't know something went wrong. But they were quite heated at times and they could get quite uptight at times. Uh-huh. Maybe just the characters that they are. But then there was other people that were absolutely lovely. You know, Rikishi was eased into the tour. You know, he was a really nice guy. And I remember one night he asked me to, you know, step aside with him for a conversation. And at this point in the tour, I'm really getting into just feeling a bit more relaxed about it all as well. And I thought, oh, damn, I'm about to get told off for something or told you need to do more of the ring crew stuff, you know, something random like that. And he was saying, oh, I just want to thank you for what you've done. And, you know, I wanted to take you aside and just find out if you get any thoughts about what we could do creatively. You know, and I was totally taken aback by that because I was expecting a bollocking of some kind. Yeah. Even though I hadn't really done anything wrong, but I just didn't think that type of conversation was going to happen. And he was just wanting to get ideas off me. And I dare say he might have done it with everyone in the tour, but I thought it was just a nice touch, you know? Yeah. In fact, there was one night we were doing another one of the arena shows, and backstage there was some guy with his kid, and I don't know who the guy was, but I'm assuming he was some kind of a local celebrity or politician to manage to get backstage to meet the wrestlers. Right. And he's getting to meet Rikishi, and, you know, he's taking a picture of Rikishi with his kid, and the kid's getting his program signed, and everyone's all happy and smiling. But it just so happened that this, you know, started off while I was talking to Rikishi. And I was sort of, I still stood around. I just took a step to the side and I'm smiling. It was a nice scene, you know, this boy's meeting one of his heroes and all that. And then Rikishi turns around to the guy and says, get his autograph as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I almost burst out laughing, thinking it's a joke. But it isn't. And, you know, Rikishi started saying to this Italian guy, he's one of the crew as well, get his autograph. And I was like, for fuck's sake so um, <laughs> I get handed this program as one of the WWE programs and I went to the back page because I've had a few of these in my day and I found the Silver Vision advert or whatever it was and I just tinyly <laughs> put Tony and Adet down the corner <laughs> but you know that's my recollection of it but yeah I mean you know people at Rikishi were great Ultimo Dragon was great you know uh-huh. he's been around and done it all seen it all and he was there with his entourage. He had two female assistants. They had a photographer with him as well. He was a really nice guy, the photographer. He actually brought masks with him, or the company was selling his masks, uh-huh. similar to how people sell Rey Mysterio stuff. But I remember one night, at least, where he was just giving them away. He was literally grabbing these masks and just giving it to any kid that wanted one. <laughs> it was just <laughs> an interesting guy, a really nice guy. But then there was also, I remember, Flatliner, one of the British folk on the tour. He could be really challenging, I found. 
And that actually started before we'd even left Britain. We'd all met up at, I think it was Stansted Airport that we were flying out from. And I'd met up with Courtney the night before at, you know, whatever time, maybe 10 at night, she was getting there from Newcastle. And then we were just sort of hanging about all night. And then, you know, I'm guessing now, but I think Lisa turned up next, Lisa Fury. And so then there's the three of us hanging out. She's got there from Liverpool. And then Flatliner appears. He's got there from Portsmouth. And when I met Flatliner, I was like, oh, my God, this is the nicest person I've ever met in my life. He had the massive smile. He's just full of positive chat for that few minutes. It's all amazing. Fast forward 10 minutes and Hayde Banson's appeared and Flatliner just totally changed. I mean, literally in the space of a second, his whole demeanour changed from being this bubbly, big, smiley guy to, you know, looking absolutely angry as hell. And I'm thinking, God, do these guys get a bit of background here, a bit of history? I don't know what's going on. But Hade comes over and we're doing the whole handshake thing and whatnot. And Flatliner just starts giving him a really hard time to the point where Hade just walked away. I mean, some of it was really, really strong stuff. Uh And I was just stood there open mouthed. And Flatliner turned to me and said, I bet 10 minutes ago you thought I was a really nice guy. And I'm just stood there absolutely stunned by what I'm hearing. Because as you know, Carl, I've got a sense of humour. You know, I like watching strong comedians. I go uh-huh. to see James Sadowich and all that. You know, and I love stuff like Brass Eye or whatever. You know, yeah. I'm not delicate when it comes to humour. But this wasn't humour. It was outright just nasty, the stuff he was saying. It wasn't acceptable then, and it certainly isn't acceptable now. And I was just taken aback. And I remember feeling really, you know, the atmosphere's changed at this point because there's an awkwardness for me, Lisa, Courtney, but also Hayde. He's feeling it the most because he thinks no one in the group's accepting him. That was my perception. He thinks it's him versus us, whereas we just happened to be stood there at the time this guy started ranting at him. And I remember not speaking to Hayde again, either in Stansted or on the plane, going to Italy for the full flight. But then once we got to Italy and we got through passport control, I seen him at baggage pickup and I was like, yeah, I don't know if you'll remember, but we worked together of all places in the bonus ball centre. <laughs> <laughs> Just coming full circle. And Kilmarnock years ago when you came up to work in Scotland with Alex. And he was like, oh yeah, I remember. And he had a smile on his face and we're chatting away and that was all good. But yeah, it certainly created an atmosphere and it didn't change once we met Joe outside the passport bit or even once we got to the hotel. Flatliner was just constantly at head and it just wasn't right, the stuff he was saying. It just wasn't acceptable and it created a real atmosphere to the point, actually, because I wasn't just stood there joining in or laughing and I was making an effort to chat with Hade. I was actually going beyond to make sure Hade didn't feel it's me versus the world here because I thought I wouldn't like to be in that spot. So then all of a sudden Flatliner would start on me and I can't remember if this was right away or at what point in the tour, but he would say things like, yeah, I don't even know why you're here. You're taking a spot for someone like Doug Williams. And I remember thinking and possibly saying, do you think Doug Williams really wants to come to Italy to referee a tour? You know, like, in your mind, you're thinking, I'm taking someone's spot. And that someone, coincidentally, would always be someone that was part of the All-Star roster. It wouldn't even be the people that I would view as the indie darlings of the scene. 
it was really you're taking a spot from one of my mates <laughs> you know just surreal but again you know i remember as time went on you know things softened a bit with me and flatliner and also hayden flatliner because you're together for a couple of weeks and i suppose he's not a silly man he's not wanting to be seen to be causing trouble because he certainly would have been wanting to go back on those tours again they were very lucrative and long periods of work so he was a bit better behaved but it was really just a nasty side that i didn't like you know i didn't think there was any need for it and yeah it just sucked to be blunt the way he was going about his business but seeing someone you've just met going from being oh that's a really nice guy this is going to be a great situation being around him to thinking i don't want to be around this guy at all in the space of 10 minutes or so it was a real eye-opener for me i don't know if it's because he was a regular with them where he had this perception of i'm the cream of the crop or i work with the cream of the crop and I don't know you as being there as such. You must be inferior to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's one of those type of things. I mean, I do recall, though, it could totally change in an instance. You know, So, for example, when the Italian guys turned up on the first night, he was offering to buy them drinks and all that at the bar. And the same with the Americans. It almost felt as if he wanted to make sure he was in with Rikishi and be almost his entertainment and jester. You know, right. stick in with him, and that makes sense because there was no doubt about it that Rikishi was the big star of the tour and also doing a lot of the booking, etc. Uh-huh. But to me, it was just so false. I just take people as they are, and I'm always the same way. It doesn't matter who it is with. Funny story, actually. Like Matt Cross, he turned up in Italy late. He was one of the last ones to get there, and they hadn't booked enough rooms, or they'd booked enough rooms, but someone extras turned up, maybe an extra Italian, for example. So he arrives after something like, you know, 39 hours of travel from Cleveland, Ohio, to finally get to Italy after who knows how many flights. And he gets told, yeah, there's not a room for you. But if you just go and share with this guy here, he's called Flatliner. But Flatliner's already in the room sleeping, but he's been drinking all night. So he's absolutely stinking of Jack Daniels, I would imagine. And he also wore one of those really pungent aftershaves, like, you know, let's say Old Spice. I don't know right. if it was that, but a really pungent one. And I remember when I met Matt the next day for the first time in the breakfast room and we're sat talking and eating together. And he said, yeah, so like I turned up and I get put in a room with this guy who's snoring like a pig and he's stinking of ale and uh, aftershave. And it sounded to me a bit like, you know, the old police academy, the blue oyster bar type scenarios yeah. that they have and um you know the one bed of course and you know after um traveling from cleveland i'm sure that was the last thing he wanted to do but yeah i mean people can be weird i mean it's not just a wrestling thing i mean i've seen it in my professional career where some people will literally not even say hello to you they'll look away rather than say hi you know people are odd characters but yeah i just didn't think there was any need for the way that flatliner was with head and then turn people like myself if I wasn't you know laughing along with them we had a couple of days off while we were on the tour I think one of the days off was always planned and the other day off was supposed to be a show that was cancelled right and we were in a town called Casino which suited me at the time I loved the casino at the time (laughs) (laughs) but there was not a casino to be seen in Casino so with a couple of days off and no one had really made any plans or anything you know because just to give you the context we were basically told where to be and when to be there, and we just had to make sure we left our hotel room, got on the coach, done the show, then got back on the coach, then went into another hotel, and then right. left per their itinerary. You know, so there wasn't 
for the first few days there wasn't any sort of a downtime, so to speak. But we had a couple of days off and we're in casino and Joe Legend, who's an absolute gem of a guy, he says to a few of us, does anyone fancy going to Rome for the day? Now, I've never been to Rome. I'd never actually been to Italy before. And I think it was the same for the others. So in the end, a few of us decided to go and Joe totally planned it all out for us by speaking with the hotel receptionist and finding out on the internet when the trains would be and all this stuff. And in the end, Joe essentially acted like a school teacher taking all these wrestlers and stuff on a trip to Rome. (laughs) And it wasn't the whole crew, far from it. It was myself, Joe, Hayde, Courtney, Lisa, Matt Morgan. That might have been it. Oh, sorry, Matt Cross as well. Matt M-Dog was there. So there's the seven of us there. And we got the train from Casino to Rome. And Joe, he'd been before, so like as soon as we get to the train station, we've got some food and stuff. He basically walks us to the Coliseum and then arranges for us to get a tour of the Coliseum. And then once we're done that, he takes us on the tube over to the Vatican, not halting whatsoever. He knows his way around the city. Uh-huh. And we get over to the Vatican City and we went for some food. Then we went and stepped out into St. Peter's Square. Now, this is where um, it gets interesting, really. <laughs> so we've had a nice day doing the touristy stuff. We've had a meal. But during that meal, Matt is downing the wine. Matt Morgan, that is. Uh-huh. And he's downing it by the bottle. And he's sociable enough and hospitable enough. He would say, does anyone want a glass? I think the answer was no. Maybe one of the girls had one small glass just to try it. The rest of us are all drinking water or Coke, but Matt's just ordering bottle after bottle of wine. Now, he might be a big guy. You know, he might be nearly seven foot tall, but if you're going to keep drinking wine by the bottle over the course of an hour, (laughs) you're going to feel the effects. So we leave this restaurant and we go back to the Vatican Square just to have a wander about. At this point, the museums and stuff and the churches are closed, but it was enough just to actually be there and stand where they do the mass and all that and have a look at the statues and all that good stuff. Matt spots some nuns leaving the main building of the Vatican and decides he really wants to get his picture taken with them since he's in Rome. When in Rome, get pictures with the nuns at the Vatican. (laughs) So he starts walking really quickly over And myself and one or more people sort of try and keep up with him. We're running to his strides, essentially. And he stops and says to these nuns, excuse me, can I get a picture with you? And they look up at him and they say, sorry, no, we've got to be somewhere, or words to that effect. No, I want a picture with you. (laughs) (laughs) And at this point, it was almost like one of those Del Boy Trotter moments of, you know, looking up at heaven from Vatican Square, ironically <laughs> enough, thinking, oh my god, what's going to happen here? Because you can see the Swiss guards over in the background as well. Oh, <laughs> And Joe, I think at this point, he comes over and he knows the ins and outs of how it all works and he's trying to say to Matt, just leave it. But Matt's arguing with these nuns at this point, I want a picture! <laughs> And these poor nuns are like these little delicate old ladies, essentially, about five foot four between them. And here's Matt, almost seven foot, all muscular and stuff, shouting and bawling, going red in the face. I want a picture, I want a picture. They managed to escape, and we thought, oh, look at the time, we better get back to the train station anyway, you know, we've seen enough. 
you know, in the back of our heads, I think all of us were probably thinking before that those guards over there catch yeah. wind of what's going on, those nice guards with their guns. And um, <laughs> and also, I mean, there was a few F-words shouted as well at the nuns in the middle of the Vatican, St. Peter's Square. You know, and I don't know if much swearing ever goes on there, but, you know, it just didn't feel right. So anyway, we jump into taxis and we go back to the train station. We get to the train station. It's called Termini. They're equivalent of Birmingham New Street or London Euston, you know, a massive place. I love that comparison. (laughs) And what happens is we see the time, you know, up on the board, the train that goes to Casino is leaving in about half an hour or 45 minutes. We didn't need to rush for it. In fact, I think we just missed a train, so we had a wee bit of time to wait. Uh-huh. and we're all sort of doing different things, you know, just as you would in any train station. Some people are saying, I'm going to grab a bottle of water. Other people are saying, I'm going to go and grab a roll in something. I turn around and I see a Zamboni flying by, and it's Matt Morgan driving it. <laughs> <laughs> when I say a Zamboni, it was, you know, these cleaning machines that you see uh-huh. in shopping centres and stuff where someone's driving it, and it's sort of a cleaning or polishing the floor. It was one of them. Mm-hmm. He's basically seen this Zamboni sitting still unattended to and he's jumped in and I don't know if he had a forklift driver experience or something before the (laughs) WWE, but he certainly knew how to operate it from what I could see. But there's a couple of the railway staff seeing him and they're sort of waving their hands and going, no, 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 no. So he gets out and he stops and this is probably a bad thing, but I'm absolutely buckled laughing. So, you know, it might have been better if I hadn't been laughing, but I've seen the lot, and it was one of these things that if you had proper, decent mobile cameras back then, you'd have filmed the whole thing and uploaded it to YouTube. But, you know, he's seen that I'm laughing, so he's getting into his stride, and he's enjoying being the centre of attention. So then, for whatever reason, I don't know. I didn't know then, I didn't find out, and I'll never know, probably. He sees this older Italian guy, around 60 years old, just walking through the train station and minding his own business. And Italians are typically quite short as a nation. You know, they're not the tallest of folk. And it felt as if I'm tall here and I'm not. I'm about 5 foot 11 or something on a good day. But Matt Morgan's nearly 7 foot. So they're looking at him as if he's Gulliver. And um, <laughs> this wee Italian guy's probably not even made eye contact but he does at some point make some kind of eye contact and then he realises that Matt Morgan's staring at him and is starting to run towards them. And rather than just sort of like stand still and stand his ground, the wee guy started running towards the platforms and Matt didn't stop. So you've got this Italian guy who's about 5 foot 2, 60 years old, running as fast as he can, shouting stuff in Italian. Meanwhile, you've got seven foot Matt Morgan chasing after him. (laughs) So that's that. Eventually, he leaves the wee man alone. I don't know if the man just kept running and maybe got knocked down by a train. Who knows? But then it's around the time to get on the train to go back to casino. And we're on this train. And essentially, we're all trying to behave. You know, we've got a sort of a... If you think about the old James Bond films, you know, it's like you have a private compartment. And we found this sort of a bit where there was one poor girl sat there and we all joined her. And I think she quickly left once we all steamed in. But then Matt went away and we didn't know where he was. And ultimately, Joe Legend said, I better go and find him. And we were all knackered at this point 
from the day trip in its own right, but also all the antics that we've witnessed. Mm-hmm. Rightly or wrongly, we let Joe go himself on the train to go and find Matt Morgan. And it really shouldn't be too hard to find someone that's nearly seven foot on a train. <laughs> but Joe was away for a good while. And eventually, you know, he tracked down Matt. And I think Matt found a bar on the train, so he's getting more <laughs> wine and stuff. And I think Joe had been texting us or trying to call us, but we're on a train, so you've not got a signal. It's just uh-huh. like here, you know, if you go on the London Tube, you might get a signal when you're passing Hammersmith, but then it goes away again. So like, I think at the end, we all would text messages from Joe Legend saying, where are you? Where are you guys? Come and help me. I've got to find them, or I need help getting him back. <laughs> all this stuff. So then we finally get to casino, we're all absolutely exhausted, probably particularly Joe after babysitting us all and then, you know, finding Matt again. And we walk out to find the taxi that had been booked for us was actually a hearse. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I assume that, you know, a booking had come through for taxi for six or seven people, whatever it was, but they didn't have a people carrier or the equivalent. I don't know if they owned it, the taxi company, but it was certainly like a hearse that we were in. You know, <laughs> and I remember there was this awkward silence because everyone's feeling the effects of, you know, just the long day in Rome and Matt's antics in particular. And when we got back to the hotel, we got out this taxi, hearse, and folk like Rikishi are outside having a drink and our fag or whatever it is are doing. And they see us and they're like, oh, how was your day out to Rome? And quick as a flash, Matt's like, oh, it was excellent. Wait till I tell you about the Coliseum. <laughs> it's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, we're all looking as if we've been through the wars. And he's the one that's, uh, you know, right into action. All the enthusiasm. Yeah, again, that was just a crazy day. All that stuff. Managing to avoid getting arrested in the Vatican City. <laughs> oh, that sounds absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, the trip to Roman back wasn't Matt's only good value. I remember one night we're in a hotel somewhere and there was a few of us that would just stay up late every night just drinking at the bar. And sometimes it didn't have to be alcohol. I remember sitting up for hours one night with Joe Legend, just kind of coke each, just talking about his background and stuff. Uh-huh. But there was one night where we were certainly drinking. Not drunk, but we've all had a few. And what's happened is... Vampiro at this point has become a bit of a character for the whole tour you know it wasn't just me he was awkward with everyone's identifying that he's a bit of an odd character to be around and a little bit techy and I'll explain a bit more about that shortly but essentially Matt Morgan stands up and he walks over to the reception area which is right beside the bar and he says to the receptionist what room is Vampiro in? You know, so if you think about that sentence for the receptionist, that's not going to make much sense. (laughs) But then Matt turns round and says, what's his name? What's his name? And someone said, oh, is it Richard or is it Ian? It's certainly something Hodgkinson. So Matt turns round to the receptionist and said, Hodgkinson, Ian or Richard Hodgkinson? And the wee guy's like, oh, yes, yes, Mr. Hodgkinson is in room number 672 or whatever it is. Okay, I want to phone him. (laughs) so at this point it's like one in the morning or something like that and the receptionist he's like I don't know if I should let you do that I want to phone him give me that phone and Matt grabs the phone so he dials the number (laughs) so we can't hear what's going on on the other side obviously but all we hear is Matt shouting 
you're a jobber as loud as he can. Bring <laughs> the phone down. So a minute passes, not even a minute, and the receptionist phone goes. <laughs> And we can see the receptionist sort of looking over at Matt, looking at all of this. And you can see he's saying, sorry, sir, there, there must have been a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, I'm absolutely buckled, as is probably everyone. And then Matt walks over again to the receptionist and says, give me that phone. <laughs> and the guy's like, uh, I don't know, sir. <laughs> again, looking up at seven foot Matt. I don't know, sir. And he's like, give me that phone. So he grabs the phone again, phones the number, and all we hear is, you're still a jobber! (laughs) (laughs) Slams the phone down, comes back, sits with us. Sure enough, 30 seconds pass, the receptionist's phone goes again. And at this point, the receptionist guy is getting a little bit flustered, so he is. And we can hear him say, yes, sir, no, sir, sorry, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Okay, one memento. <laughs> and he grabs his book and he says, Matt Chiapucciani, or something along those lines. He basically says Matt Cross's real name. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this point, I'm sat facing M Dog stroke Matt Cross, and like we all burst out laughing. Meanwhile, his face absolutely drops because he's thinking, oh my god. I've come here to try and get a bit of exposure and network and more experiences, and I appear to have just been landed in it with Vampiro, who would easily go and block me from getting any bookings in North America ever again. That was clearly the thoughts that were going through his mind at this point in time. <laughs> but absolutely gold. Just to, you know, imagine poor Vampiro up there getting disturbed, but also the receptionist grassing on the wrong mat. It was comedy gold. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Matt did have his temper, Matt Morgan that is, and I remember one night before a show, we were, I suppose notionally speaking, friends at this point, because I was refing all, or at least most of his matches, and on the tour bus I sat in front of him and John Heidenreich, and we were the three that were always talking the first couple of days of the tour with each other, and then as time went on that kind of group expanded. Even Rikishi ended up coming up to the back of the bus to join in in the banter. But, you know, Matt could have a short fuse. And I remember one night he's going round people, and I can't remember the individuals, but he's saying, oh, can you help me put some oil in my back? And they're like, no, man, not doing it for you. <sighs> That's annoying. Um, you, come here, will you put some oil in my back? No, I'm not doing it. Fuck! You know, and he's getting angrier and angrier, and he's starting to punch walls and stuff. And then he turns around to me and he says, Tony! oil my back and he hands me this bottle of baby oil and here's me stood oiling up matt morgan you know <laughs> like some kind of gay porn film from the 1970s and he's still ranting about those guys are a pain in the ass while i'm just sort of a rubbing this lotion onto him thinking what his life come to but here i am stood rubbing lotion onto matt morgan crazy absolutely crazy days but a lovely guy Ultimately, he had his ups and downs, and probably, like most of his, his mood swings were probably dependent on what he'd been taking, if he did too much to drink, for example. But I think he's sorted himself out now. He went on to have a decent career at TNA Wrestling after that Italian stuff, and he's actually the mayor of a town in Florida now, believe it or not. <laughs> That's the place I want to live. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I think the town he's the mayor of is about 18 miles most from Orlando, 
And I was there about a year and a half ago, and I'm supposed to be going back. And there's a bit of me that wants to go and just hang out with Matt and see what Mayor Matt Morgan is like. But <laughs> <laughs> if he's a teetotaler now, it might be a different story. Now he's a mayor. Or you might turn up in the town and it's on fire as soon as you like walk through the city limits sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, thinking of Matt, you know, I automatically think of John Heidenreich as well. They were the two giants of the tour. Funnily enough, when I signed on to do the tour, they'd announced that they were having Brock Lesnar on the tour. But for some reason, they bailed out on them. So that's a shame. It'd have been interesting to have worked and been around Brock Lesnar for a couple of weeks. But once Brock bailed, John Heidenreich joined the tour and John had just been released from the WWE. He'd had a bit of a reputation, if you read the online stuff and all the forums at the time, you know, as just being a bit of an awkward customer. And when I seen that John had joined the tour, I actually had a horrible feeling in my stomach, very temporarily thinking, oh God, is this going to be a nightmare being around this guy? And it couldn't be further from the truth. The opposite was true. We had a great relationship from the first time I said hi to the guy and we would just sit and talk on those coach trips around Italy for what could be legitimately 10 hours at a time. Mm-hmm. We would just sit and talk about everything to do with, you know, growing up or wrestling or the movies we liked and all that stuff. It was an absolute gent. And I remember saying to Spinner about it afterwards, saying, it's so weird, I had this feeling that he might be a bit awkward or arrogant. And Spinner's probably right. He said to me, well, you know what? He's had his run. He's no longer chasing something. Probably a bit more relaxed now where he doesn't have to be worried about everything in life and he's just out to have a good time and then more money while he can. And that's probably a fair assessment for some of these guys. They're there to still pay the mortgage and put food on the table, but they're not chasing it the way they were in terms of fame. They know that they're not going to get that fame again, probably. So they're just making the best of what they can. But John was insane at times because I remember one day we stopped off at a service station, just the equivalent of, you know, Southwaite, for example. And I remember, you know, just like if it was Southwaite, you know, some people hang about together, some people go to the toilet, some people go and buy a Burger King, some people go and buy a magazine. Everyone's doing their own thing. And whatever I was doing, I'm leaving the service station and I hear a massive loud noise and I turn around and it's John Heidenreich kicking the window at the front of the building. <laughs> and um, again, you know, John's about six foot seven, really muscular, big guy, and he's just constantly kicking this pain in the window. And I think it was probably actually hard plastic. You know, it's one of these buildings where there wasn't a solid to it. You could see through the whole thing, so it's probably all hard plastic or right. very reinforced glass. And he's just stood repeatedly kicking the glass occasionally, elbowing it or whatnot. And I walked up and I was like, John, is everything okay? And he's like, damn, bro, they won't take my credit card here. (laughs) Jesus. I thought he'd just heard his dog had died or worse, you know what I mean? (laughs) And it was all over not being able to buy stuff in the shop. And I was like, look, I've got some euros, you know, here you go. And he's like, no, no, it's all right. And, you know, we're back us, but I'm just imagining the poor folk that worked in that service station, particularly if they had a security guard. Imagine getting told, yeah, go and sort that nonsense out. Then you walk out <laughs> and it's John Heidenreich, six foot seven, all muscle kicking the windows in. John was a great guy, but he could be a bit odd as well. I remember he was always talking to me about a film called Full Metal Jacket. Have you ever oh, yeah. seen that? Yeah, okay, yeah. So- it's got quite a infamous scene now. I've seen it since then, but I hadn't seen it at the time. 
and it's the really nasty drill sergeant. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. giving everyone a hard time. And to that end, actually, John's nickname for me was Private Bond. Bond being Sean Connery is Scottish. You're Scottish, so you're Bond, and you're Private Bond. <laughs> so here's this <laughs> odd peep show situation where I'm Private Bond, and I'm calling him Private John or something like that. Absolutely weird. But I remember when we were in, funnily enough, it was Casino, the place that we were based at for that day trip to Rome. The next day, some people went to Pompeii, but I decided to hang back because I think someone extra had went on the trip this time, which made it more awkward for the taxi or the hearse arrangements. And I said, <laughs> I don't mind hanging back. I just hung about at the hotel, now and again grabbing a drink with someone or going for a walk. And I went a walk along the roads. It was like a dual carriageway. And I walked by things like dead foxes where you could see their bones and all that. You know, it was like being in the Wild West to an extent. And I got to this bit where there was shops and this big massive shop that was the size of a big sports shop here or a Halfords or something. But it was like all it sold was camping equipment and army uniform stuff and knives and other weapons and things like that. So I go back to the hotel and I'm telling everyone about this place. I'm saying, oh, you ought to see it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there was grenades and all sorts in it. It was insane. <laughs> the stuff we had, like a shop, John Heidenreich excuses himself and says, I'm going to go and have a look. So off he goes. And I'm still sat in this hotel reception area with people coming and going. And then I see John, all six foot seven of him, trying to sneak in the hotel without anyone seeing him. <laughs> with various carrier bags from this army shop <laughs> and I'm thinking please god please don't let him having a bag full of knives or guns or grenades at this point in time because when he takes a bad turn it ain't pretty <laughs> you know? thankfully I've never seen any proof of any ammo or weapons but I certainly know that the next time he toured Italy, he'd stopped wearing the stuff he was wearing in the WWE, which was red trunks and red boots. And he was now wearing all this combat gear. Kind of looked a bit like tackle brief from Police Academy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like a proper G.I. Joe. But yeah, just a really funny guy. And one of his things, it wasn't the first night he did it, but maybe the second night, he spotted a fire extinguisher backstage. Well, the punters have already started coming in and he said to me, Tony, can you go and put this under the ring? And what I'll do is, at some point you'll be distracted by something, you know, the turnbuckle's down, so you're fixing the turnbuckle. I'll grab the fire extinguisher and I'll hit Matt with it. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely fine. So, like, I put, I'm already in my referee stuff, so I've put a hoodie on or something, grab the fire extinguisher and try to casually walk down the aisle, you know, the entrance ramp, with all these punters already in. But they don't know I'm a referee, so hopefully they just think I'm one of the true and I put this fire extinguisher under the ring. Sure enough, they do the spot, works a treat, everyone's happy. Next night, all the crowd are in, same thing. Tony, I found another fire extinguisher. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind taking it and putting it under the ring? And I'm like, oh, for God's sake. So here I am this time, but for whatever reason, this crowd are really noticing me this night. Maybe I'd already been out in the referee gear, I can't recall. So I'm walking down to the ring really fast and I put this fire extinguisher under the ring which then they later see me grab from John Heidenreich, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then the next night, same thing, you know, Tony, I found another fire extinguisher. <laughs> now this night I'd certainly already refereed a match at least. So all the crowd are actually shouting a word which I assume was referee 
it may have been a rude word, who am I to know? But <laughs> I get to the ring and I put this under the ring. And then I jump straight in the ring to referee the match where John pulls that same fire extinguisher from under the ring. And then I grab it off him. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it would have been much better if he'd planned that a bit more in advance, I think. <laughs> I mean, one of them I actually have not mentioned too much is Vampiro. And how odd Vampiro could be as the tour went on. You know, at first I thought he was maybe just off with me. But the first night of the tour, we'd already had the meeting during the day, I'm sure. But we had a pre-show meeting as well. And how these things would typically work is the Italians and or Rikishi would give us updates on things. Or tell us what they were expecting from us. Or give us updates on what to expect at the arena and the arrangements for dinner afterwards and all that. They would do a round robin of, you know, Rikishi would say his piece. And then he would say... Joe, have you got anything to say? Yoshi, have you got anything to say? Matt Morgan, have you got anything to say? John Heidenreich, have you got anything to say? Vampiro, have you got anything to say? Basically, all the star names would be given their specific turn to say something. And to a man, no one really took them up on it. But it was nice to be offered that opportunity. And then the floor would be open. Does anyone else get anything they want to say or ask? And, you know, I don't really remember anyone doing much. But the first night, all this happens. So then Rikishi says, well, that's great. What we'll do is we'll get ready. We'll go and do the show. And we'll have a great show. And remember, guys, stay safe. Put smiles on faces. You know, all this good stuff. And we're all starting to stand up. And then all of a sudden, all I heard was, I've got something to say. And he's like, what's this? <laughs> Sit down again. Turn around and it's Vampiro. And I'm thinking, oh, he must have missed his cue because he was specifically asked if he had something he wanted to say. But he didn't say anything at that point. And he just started talking about something, and I can't to this day remember what it was the first night, but he said his piece, and that was it. You know, and Rikishi said, all right, great, thanks a lot for that contribution, brilliant. And we all went about our business. Fast forward to the next night, we were at the arena again before the show, another team talk happens, Rikishi's running it, and he says, have you got anything to say, Matt? Have you got anything to say, Vampiro? You, John? Da, da, da. No one's got anything to say. Right, well, we'll just um, crack on with the show and hopefully it's as good as last night. I've got something to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay. And it was Vampiro, and he started ranting about something. I think that night it was about respect. So he was explaining how he'd noticed a lack of respect for him and the other veterans. You know, we should all be respecting everyone. But it was really more of a, I want respect from you, but I won't engage with you either. It was a very odd situation. Mm. But at some point, you know, he just kept talking and rambling on. and That was all good. So he finished his piece. Next day, we're in a hotel having quite an early team meeting. And at this point, myself, and I think it turns out almost everyone else in the room is waiting for this <laughs> intervention from Vampiro <laughs> now. So Rikishi does the rounds and you're sort of a watching Rikishi but keeping an eye to the side for Vampiro. And sure enough, Rikishi says, well, that's it. If no one's got anything to say, we can wrap this up, guys and girls. And at that point, I've looked totally at Vampiro. I'm staring at the man now. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm waiting for it. I've got something to say. And I swear to God, Carl, I'm sure there was like, you know, people punching the air. Or at least in my mind, I was doing that. I might have even done a sort of a fist movement, you know, as if, you know, you know what the way you'd be if Nottingham Forest scored a goal? I know that might not happen too often, but... I, uh... say, I, I can't really remember. <laughs> but that's what it was like. He's done it. He's doing it again. And he sort of stood in front of us all. 
and again, I can't remember what his whinge was, but at one point he said, I'm speaking specifically to you, and he pointed, and it turned out that to a man and woman, everyone thought he was talking specifically to them. It, just, it was almost like a cult leader or something, where we would all swear hand and heart, no, he was talking to me, I know he was. It was just surreal. And then we'd done another show, one of the TV tapings, and it was at a beach. It was an outdoor show. And that was a first for me, doing an outdoor show. And what happened was we have the team meeting, and it's not even a novelty anymore. We all know he's going to do it. And then he does it. You know, I've got something to say. And he went on a real rant this day. He was talking about how if you're in the dressing room, or in this case, the tent, (laughs) and, you know, a veteran walks in, you should stand up and offer him your seat. If you see a veteran, you should go and ask if they need anything from the shops. If you see a veteran, you should go and ask if they could do with you getting them some cold water. These are real examples of the things he's saying. And I remember sat there thinking, what a dick. I mean, even if any of this is valid, am I supposed to, for example, me personally, am I supposed to go and try and find a shop in this place I've never been in my life before? So try and get out of the arena setting and then try and get back in so I can go and get you a tube of Pringles. <laughs> you know, it's, it just isn't practical. But that was what Vampiro was like. He was just such an odd character. But this night when he was talking about you should go and get a bottle of water for the veteran, why? It doesn't matter why. It's just the way it is. Why should you go and offer your seat to a vet? Why? It doesn't matter why. It's just the way it is. And he did this about half a dozen times. And I'm just sat there thinking, someone's going to crack him at some point. (laughs) You know, someone's (laughs) going to chin him. (laughs) But we were all the same. You're all just trying to keep your head down and, you know, get on with it. But he was such a weird character. And that night, that TV taping, the deal was that, as I mentioned at the start of the tour, I read this script where the referee gets killed. So the idea was that Vampiro was wrestling, I think it was John Heidenreich that night, actually. And what happens is, at the end of the match, he beats the referee up, me, which is fine. But in doing so, he then drags the referee and places him in a coffin. You know, so he punches me and I land in a coffin. Mm -hmm. And then he bends down and he grabs my heart out of my body and sort of starts dripping the blood from my heart over his face, which is covered in white makeup. Okay? (laughs) This might sound a bit surreal. (laughs) Well, I didn't want to say it. (laughs) So this is a TV taping, and that's how the TV taping's ending, with him stood there with the blood dripping down in his face. The blood from my heart, of course. But you can't really end a show like that, can you, for the lot of people or their life? So what happens is, at this point, Rikishi, who on TV is a sort of a commissioner, he doesn't wrestle on TV, but he wrestles at all the house shows. Right. He comes out and he basically, you know, clears house with Vampiro, he batters him. And I think Black Pearl, Rikishi's cousin or nephew, might have been involved in that as well. So they batter Vampiro. And what do they do with Vampiro? They throw him in the coffin, which I'm already trying. <laughs> so, this is a legitimate wooden coffin, but mine is the sort of a cushions that you'd expect in a real coffin when a dead person goes in it. So I'm lying there trying to just stay still, 
not knowing at any point if there's a camera on me or if any fans can see me. So I'm lying there, eyes shut, and I can hear the movements in the ring. You know the ring noise, what that is like. Then I can hear the steps getting closer to me. And then the next thing, I've got Vampiro lying on top of me. And they shove the top of the lid down. <laughs> the lid of the coffin down. So I'm lying in a legitimate coffin. Vampiro's lying on top of me. <laughs> so we're essentially spooning now in a coffin. And he whispers to me, you okay? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but then it dawned on us something that we hadn't thought about. We hadn't rehearsed this spot, if you want to call it a spot. We're in this, on a beach, <laughs> and we're in this coffin that's on the entrance ramp. No one had thought about how we get out the coffin, or when we get out the coffin and backstage again. <laughs> so we're having this discussion in the coffin about what do we do? Do we go now? Do we wait a bit longer? And we waited for it. Maybe it was in real terms about five minutes, but it felt longer than that when you're lying with someone on top of you in a coffin. And then he said, when I give you the nod, or when I go, you go, we just run. <laughs> so you're Sam. He jumps out of the coffin and I jump out and we both sprint up this ramp. Think of a WWE show, you know, it's a proper ramp they've got with a set at the end. <laughs> We're sprinting up it and there's still people on the beach stood watching us all. Oh, that's fantastic. So that's the evening that I spooned with Vampiro. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I remember we got back and I'm trying to do the right thing, you know, respect, you know, why it doesn't matter why, so I'm trying to be respectful. So I walk up and I say to him, oh, was that okay? And he looks at me and he says in the most patronising way, well, you hardly saved the kid from the terrifying end, did you? You know, words to that effect, you know. You, 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 and it's just like, you're just such a dick, you know. I just uh, <laughs> couldn't believe the guy. But everyone else felt the same. And it sounds, if someone didn't know and wasn't involved and wasn't there, it might sound like bullying, which is what he, in a sense, I think he wanted. But mm. he just didn't want to engage. He would knock down the opportunity to engage. And I remember one night we were stood outside a hotel and some people were smoking and some of us have a drink in our hands, probably me included. We all had a few drinks and we're joking and, you know, people are doing the impersonations of him now, you know, this whole, why? And then someone, I think it might have even been Flatliner, said, do you not realise he's a bit like Beetlejuice as well? <laughs> and everyone's like, what do you mean? And it's like, see, if you mention his name, the cunt appears. <laughs> <laughs> we all burst out laughing and perhaps it was me but certainly someone went vampiro 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 and we all burst out laughing not a minute later there was a sort of <laughs> there's a sort of a movement about you know 15 feet away uh, a tree beside the hotel building <laughs> and he walks out from behind this tree <laughs> So he's been stood there the whole time that we've been calling him for all sorts, doing impersonations of him, all this stuff. We've not seen him come out the hotel and go there, so he might have been there the whole time we've been outside smoking and drinking. But in any case, as soon as we said Vampiro, 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 that's when he decided to show his hand and he walked out. And it was one of these moments where we were all with that, oh, hiya. <laughs> <laughs> 
absolutely insane. You know, what a character, and I don't know what's became of the man. The ironic thing, Carl, was he was amazing in the ring. Absolutely amazing. It was how I imagine working with Shawn Michaels in his day would have been. He was just brilliant, but he was just such a dick as well. And, I mean, even the first night when I was refing his match, he was working with one of the Italian guys. There was, like, two Italian guys. One was called Thunder, I think, and the other one was called Fire Angel. And they were both really nice guys. But I remember we go out to have the match and we've done the usual backstage. Here's the deal. We go out and as soon as he's in the ring, he says, let's do this pair of the British rules. And I sort of, I think it's a rivet first on me, but the Italian guy doesn't have a clue what's going on at this point when he says this to him. So he's insisting now he wants rounds or he wants me to check his boots in a certain way and all sorts of things. And the Italian guy wanted to run a mile, I think. Just a very awkward customer to have around. And I dare say that's why he never made it to the WWE because, you know, he probably has been a bit odd and weird his whole life and not wanting to be a team player, really. Yeah. I mean, there was some laugh, some of those nights. Rikishi was good value as well. I mean, I remember one night, he was genuinely famous in Italy, you know, because how it worked, someone explained it to me, like, imagine Channel 5 in Britain bought the WWE or WCW rights, but they were showing stuff on an 18-month delay. So you had all these folk like Rikishi, Matt Morgan, and John Heidenreich that were on people's tellies while we were there. These people that turned up at shows thought, to an extent, they were probably at a WWE show (laughs) because they were seeing the folk that were on the telly every Thursday night or Sunday morning, whatever it might be. And, you know, I remember we went to a restaurant one night and you'd think it was the Godfather had returned, you know, to the local village (laughs) when Rikishi walked in. (laughs) So much so that, you know, they're all treating royalty. Treated as all nice, but, you know, he was a VIP for sure. And when we were leaving, they gave him a platter of meats to take with him. Now, this platter, um, when I say meats, I don't mean cold meats like we'd buy out of Iceland. I mean meatballs, Italian sausage, all this, like, really stodgy food. It was a platter probably, you know, the size of a 24 can of Coke multi-pack. You know, it was maybe double that size, actually. And Rikishi turned around, and I was the closest one to him at this point, just by luck or unluck. And he said, Tony, will you put this in the coach for me? And I was like, no worries. So I took this platter, put it up where he sat on the coach. And everyone kind of saw this happening, and we all thought, that's great. If we're hungry later on, there's more food. But we get back to the hotel, and Rikishi sneaked off to the room himself with it. (laughs) So we're all starving, and uh, he's he's eating all these meatballs and Italian sausages himself. I suppose that's what you get if you're the star of the show, perhaps. I don't know. The first full day there, I'm never one for eating breakfast in hotels. I try and force myself if I'm on holiday with family or whatnot, but I'm just not a morning person. I don't really eat till lunchtime usually. So I was missing out on the hotel breakfast in Italy, and then the idea was you would eat after the shows, but in this show, I think it was the first or second night, they delivered pizza to the arena for us to eat. And I'm starving at this point because I've not eaten all day. And I hadn't even really eaten the day before. And the pizzas arrive. And I'm really looking forward to trying Italian pizza. And what happens is I'm like, oh, this doesn't look as good as I thought it would. Because the pizza boxes arrive and they've got spar on them. You know, the shop, the spar that we've got. That's what they had over there, and that's where they'd ordered the pizzas from. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this, 
this isn't what my thought of having pizza in Italy is going to be. I thought it was going to be, you know, really authentic. And uh-huh. someone went over and opened the box, and it was like a really overdone pizza base with this tomato sauce on it, but no cheese or anything else on it. <laughs> it was just this overcooked dough with tomato sauce on top. So the ones of us that are starving, we try to eat it. Even the folk like Matt Cross, who are like super healthy, had to try and nibble because he's starving. But we just couldn't do it. So then the next day, again, I didn't have breakfast in the hotel. I probably should have. Get to the arena that night. We're all set to do the show. And the show is supposed to start at about half seven. But it doesn't. And there's no one there. There's not a sign of any life whatsoever. It's just us and our ring crew and our crew. No one else whatsoever. And I had to say to one of the Italians, is the show being cancelled? No, no, no. It's just, it's one of these places where they'll come when they want to come. (laughs) And I said, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, they're probably all out having dinner, big family meal, and they're having drinks or whatnot. They'll just come when they want to come. And I said, well, say they're not here by eight o'clock. Will we just start? No, no, we'll just wait until there's a fair enough number of people here and then we'll start the show. And I'm like, right, okay. And the show didn't start till about fucking 10.30. (laughs) (laughs) By that point, they'd eaten enough and drank enough and they thought, yeah, we'll go along now. So we do this show and after the show, or during the show, it comes to light that the following day is a bank holiday in Italy or their equivalent public holiday. And if we were to go with the plan of staying over in a hotel, then travelling the next day, there's a real risk we won't make it to the next town because of the traffic that goes hand in hand with public holidays. You know, everyone wanting to go to the seaside and whatnot. So they say, we'll just travel overnight on the coach to the next place to save any worries of not making it to the next show. And I'm thinking, I'm starving. I don't want to go on a coach overnight. You told me I would get some dinner. And then the next sentence is, but don't worry, we've contacted a local catering company and they're going to bring food over, so we'll all eat here. So you do the show, have your showers, get changed into your civvies, we'll eat our dinner and then we'll jump on the coach and go straight to the next town. Sounds sensible enough. So bearing in mind I've not eaten for a couple of days really at this point, (laughs) the next thing this food arrives and it was almost like if Carlsberg did catering, it was ribeye steak and chips and containers. And I've eaten mine, and I'm like, oh, that was lovely, that was amazing, everyone else is saying the same. But there's these couple of spares, and I'm thinking, well, you know, I've not eaten a couple of days, and whoever the other person is who I won't name, they hadn't either. So I was like, why don't we just have two each? Everyone's eaten at this point, you know, they're just going to go to waste. So me and this other person have two steak and chips each. We're just finishing off the final bites, dusting off the crumbs from our chins and all that good stuff. And all of a sudden, we can hear Matt Morgan and John Heidenreich shouting the odds, why didn't we know there was food? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, this has got to be a rib, hasn't it? This has got to be a wind-up. But then the noise is getting louder, and you can hear the punching walls and stuff. And they appeared in the room, and they've seen all these empty containers, and they're like, is there any food left? And no word of a lie, I think I said, no, I think someone just finished it. <laughs> and I probably knew someone had just finished it since it was me so they go off in a real huff and I'm feeling pretty guilty and yeah that was the night where I'd eaten the two giants dinner and I thought I was going to get killed for it but we're on this coach going to the next town 
and one of the Italian crew, this guy Steny, who was a really lovely guy, he was very funny and very charming, very friendly, but he loved a bit of banter, and he was winding Matt Morgan and John Heidenreich up about this, because he'd worked a previous tour that Matt Morgan had done, and there was loads of banter on that too, apparently. Uh-huh. And he was calling Matt a jobber, which was one of Matt's phrases. He's like, ah, you big jobber, you didn't get any dinner. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, please <laughs> shut up about the dinner. No one remind him about the dinner. And we're in the middle of the night on the coach, and Steny just kept going on at Matt. Everyone else is sleeping. It felt as if it was just me, Steny, and Matt that were still awake. Hopefully the driver was still awake, of course, unless it was Colin. But... um. <laughs> Steny comes up and he slags Matt once more and I just had that sense, just like in any environment, the joke's no longer funny, you've crossed a line now and I would be annoyed if it was me and at this point Matt stands up, he's basically at the back of the bus, he stands up walks his down the bus, grabs Steny from behind, basically puts him in a chokehold and drags him to the back of the bus (laughs) You know, this guy's not really putting up a fight because he's getting dragged by the throat and the, his heels are sort of dragging along the middle of the bus. Matt's dragged him up the back and he's forced him down and he's basically started punching him and saying, will you stop getting on about that dinner and all this? And then once he's stopped punching him, he's just holding him down to the ground, you know, almost like you're crushing a plastic container. And I remember at this point, people are waking up because of all the noise of the punches and stuff. And I remember Joe Legend turning around to me and saying, shoot or work? I said, I think it's a shoot. And then he turns around and sees how angry Matt is. And it's like, well, what do you do? You know? <laughs> and I remember feeling so bad. And, you know, call me a coward if you want. But I remember everyone kind of knew quickly what was happening. But no one done anything about it. And when we got off the bus at the service station, I remember Steny was stood there just hanging about at the door and everyone's trying not to make eye contact with him. <laughs> and I remember stopping saying, like, are you OK? And he's like, mm, I'm feeling a bit rough, but go on. And I'm like, no, really, are you OK? Like, do you want to talk about it or anything? Ever the hero after the event, I'm happy to talk <laughs> about it. It's no longer beating you up. And he's like, no, 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 but thanks for asking. And I think that meant a lot to him, because even though he would have known I was awake at the time it was initially happening, I was the only person that actually checked in on him afterwards. Just surreal, some of the things that happen, isn't it? Yeah. At the time, you kind of like never know, and you don't want to look into too much. But I've heard since then that that was all you know, proper mafia money behind that. But that said, I dare say you've probably got like things like Ford Motor Company or something or Mafia Money. If it's in Italy, the odds are the Mafia are involved. I remember there was one show. In fact, it was the one where me and Vampiro ended up in the coffin. And before the show started, we were all ready to go. So let's say it's half six and it's a seven o'clock kickoff. You know, it's pretty close to starting. And there's this sort of a crowd of people backstage. And you can see the Italian guys looking a wee bit stressed and stuff. Just to cut a long story short, it turned out that the guy was the local mayor stroke governor stroke councillor, the local authority guy, the local government, whatever he is. Uh-huh. And he's basically, amongst other things, he said, I'll shut your show down if you don't let me speak at the start with your biggest star. You know, so <laughs> it was basically, he was saying, the show's not going to happen unless I get the following. And amongst those things, it was him getting to like step out in front of the live crowd. There was a band that were on that tour. <laughs> We were kind of like support act. It was like a sort of a girl group and they would go out every show and sing a few songs. 
and I'm sure they sang a song and then this guy came out of Rikishi and then did a bit of a promo to the local <laughs> crowd and we we're all just sort of stood watching just thinking what the hell's going on here um, and Rikishi would have been the same he didn't know Italian you know he, this guy's basically just used it as his opportunity and he looked a bit like you know that infamous porno star um, Ron Jeremy <laughs> He looked like him, but with more of Danny DeVito's height and hairline. He didn't take the girls out, I don't think, but he was with these two big models and they were like, you know, probably 22-year-old escorts and their massive high heels. They were like six foot five. You know, they were the tallest ones there if it hadn't been for John Heidenreich and Matt Morgan. And this week, guy's the height of Danny DeVito, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he actually had the sort of white chinos and the Hawaiian shirt on. <laughs> but then, like, once he did his um, promo, he, he just came backstage and he fucked off in his limo. You know, he didn't hang about. He got his bit. And I suppose that's proper politics and pressure, isn't it? You just go out and all the people are in that crowd. They're all thinking, oh, look, there's such and such. And yay, happy days. But behind the scenes, he's basically said, yeah, you're not going to head unless I do this. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny and not funny. We'll see how it lands. Um, <laughs> there was one day, probably about a week into it, where... Laura Courtney, I should say, was really upset. And I was like, oh, I'm okay. Because she'd just been in the bit where the hotel laptops or the hotel PC was. Because, you know, bear in mind, it wasn't that long ago where mobile phones were pretty basic. And even if you had internet, you couldn't really rely upon it to do anything meaningful. Yeah. And we're talking about 15 years ago here. So, you know, I think the best you could do is take a very basic picture with your mobile phone or very mm-hmm. basic email stuff. You couldn't do what you can do now. Oh, so we're all... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good old Nokia. You know, so how it works, if you're in like a hotel anywhere in the world at that point, you've got maybe one or even maybe eight computers that you could pay X amount per half hour uh-huh. to, you know, check in your emails and whatever else, put your holiday snaps up. But this hotel in Italy, it was one of the more rural ones. Mm-hmm. They did have a computer, but it was actually the hotel's own computer <laughs> for like, you know, their receptionist to use. But they were oddly happy for us to just use it. Now I think about it, God, what an exposure they'd put themselves under there. (laughs) (laughs) But what happened was, Laura's having a turn, and she seemed pretty upset. And what's happened is, there's this wrestler who I won't name that was apparently in some kind of a sexual relationship with this lady that's involved in the wrestling. He's taken pictures of her, some maybe knowingly, some maybe unknowingly to her. But in any case, he's put all these pictures on an internet page that's easily accessible. It wasn't like a porn page. It was a wrestling-related website Uh or forum. So there's just this post from this person. It's their first post. We all suspect it's probably the person that took the pictures, though, that's set this account up and posted. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, oh, it's so heartbreaking. She's devastated that these pictures are up. These pictures are on this website, and she can't get them down. She's contacted the administrators for the site and stuff. But they're not necessarily sat online waiting for this type of message to come in. So this girl, she's really upset. She can't get a hold of any of the website's administrators to take the pictures down. So any Tom, Dick or Harry that's on this website can see them. And equally anyone that's on this website can tell all their pals about these pictures. You might have perfect randoms going on this wrestling website, this forum page. So Laura was really upset about this, understandably. And we're saying, oh, that's terrible. Do you know who it was? I said, well, I don't know who it was, but I think I can have a good guess. And it was someone that, funnily enough, I knew of. And I wouldn't have put it by them to be the culprit. And, yeah, it was, like, really nasty. And I'm I'm really sorry to hear that. And she said, oh, I'm going to go to the room and I'm going to phone her. Just so I can have a proper chat with her and try and calm her down. That's my broad recollection of this all happening. 
But as with anything else in wrestling, there's always some kind of a weird dark comedy style. So she buggers off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, me and the other guys are just sat saying, oh, that's terrible, oh, it's atrocious. And then we all notice this computer sat there unmanned. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I suspect from the looks in people's faces, they're thinking, why don't I go and check out this damning situation myself? <laughs> Just so I can have a proper perspective on it in case you need some counselling, obviously. Yeah, just so I can really sympathise with Flora about her friend's predicament. But then someone appeared like the hotel receptionist or something and said, oh, sorry, guys, I'm going to have to use the computer for some business now. So that bust that one. Because <laughs> someone the next day or that night, actually, we went into the show and then like, we came back to the same hotel. And at about three in the morning, someone said they had went on <laughs> to this website. <laughs> but the page had been, they could see the title to the thread, but when they pressed it, it had all been locked down and the pictures removed, you know, something along those lines. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I was gutted I missed them as well. <laughs> they said to me, and this is like quite a famous American, <laughs> they said to me, that's all I thought about for about eight hours there. I've actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we're a week into our tour, I've not been around our wife or any other girls that we're interested in. And they're saying, you know, I had my match tonight, I had my dinner tonight. And the whole time I'm just thinking about when can I get to that fucking computer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably guilty by association because I told them the website. <laughs> it was one that was quite popular in Britain at the time. Maybe it still is. And, like, I don't know if the Americans knew of it, but they were saying, oh, what was the name of it? And I inadvertently said, oh, it's this. And then it was like, right, you know, mental note. And um, I think Emily could go on as a guest and look, this night you've got, you've got at least, like, one famous wrestler on this forum that people would never assume would be on it. Yeah, and meanwhile, <laughs> but, there's a load of guys with Nokia 3310s trying to get on. <laughs> no, I don't want to play Snake. <laughs> well, they did in one nice way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very different way of playing Snake. But that's why I love the wrestling, or loved it, because, again, I keep mentioning this, car. it's kind of like fools and horses territory, isn't it? You know, <laughs> even something that can be quite terrible happens, but then there's always this funny angle that you wouldn't necessarily find in another environment, but in the wrestling environment, you will find it. The other referee in that tour, Ricardo had got a tryout at the SmackDown and or Raw tapings in Milan that year. Right. I'm actually pretty sure that was the first time Sheamus worked a WWE TV show or beyond the tryout in front of no crowd, so to speak. Right. And I think Ricardo ultimately said, oh, I mentioned you. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> and, you know, if you get in touch with those guys, I think they'll respond to you. I'm like, what is there to lose? So, <laughs> although I'd chanced my luck with things like, you know, emailing even... I remember emailing an Australian promotion of all things. I would email anyone that seemed to be a money mark. You know, if anyone brought in imports, I thought, I'll try my luck. <laughs> I've got a picture <laughs> wearing a stripy top. I'll go for it. Yeah, I've um, got a bit of cash out now. But the actual WWE one came about actually from someone mentioning me and passing to them and saying, yeah, if you give them a shout, I'm betting at the very least they'll give you a tryout. And at that point in time, this is quite near the tail end of my refereeing, but I remember thinking, you know what, I'm half tempted because I wouldn't mind being able to sit and know that I'd worked in the Manchester Arena, which is where the tryout would have been. Uh And I had some emails with them. It was a guy called Mark Carano, who at the time I'd never heard of. 
And I even had an email back and forth exchange with John Warrenitis, who some wrestling fans will know as Johnny Ace. And after that, he became an on-screen character as a sort of a villain commissioner or mouthpiece of some kind, the same way that people like Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff had done. But yeah, I had these email comms and stuff, and it was all kind of, yeah, like, you're more than welcome to come for the tryout, you know, and stuff. We heard about you and all that. Oh, really? Didn't happen in the end. I can't remember why. I think it was probably down to timing, because at the time I got involved, I wasn't working a real job, so to speak. Right. And while I was mostly involved, I was at uni. And then, you know, once I finished uni, that was me starting to think about getting a real job. And about a year and a half into that real job, I realised, well, this hasn't got the legs to go the way I want it to go. But I can see an opportunity with an even bigger potential ahead of me if I make a move from this business to this business. But if I do that, I need to pack this in completely. I can't do the weekend warrior stuff if I'm going to be doing this job, which is going to be much harder when I'm in work. It's going to involve doing stuff at night out of work. But also, at some point, they want me to do professional qualifications to back up what I'm doing and get up the greasy pole and all that. So it didn't pan out in the end. So I never, ever did get that WWE tryout, albeit the door seemed to be open to it. But that said, you know, that was probably around the time that... I mean, I remember Drew and Sheamus, for example, telling me about all the people that they bumped into at theirs. You know, so it wasn't like a thing where when guys like William Regal get into WCW or WWF, you were the only one, perhaps. You know, you had loads of people. And I even remember hearing a story about people, and I don't want to name names, but it was the generation of Sheamus and Drew and Wade Barrett going into WWE. Some of those guys, even maybe the ones I mentioned, weren't overly keen. They might have thought, oh, is it too early to go to WWE? I might want to get a bit more experience at All-Star or whatever it might be. But then they heard about someone else getting a tryout and they thought, well, if that bastard's getting a tryout, I'm getting a tryout. (laughs) And all of a sudden, um, all these people rocked up and got their tryouts and a lot of them got jobs out of it. It's just a totally different landscape to even when you got involved in the business. It was Mm -hmm. almost unheard of. There wasn't a track to get there. Yeah. But now things change and it almost feels more of an international business than it does a US co, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's very much more interconnected nowadays. And I think that happens in lots of different aspects. I mean, I'm completely out of wrestling. You know, I've got no connections anymore. I've got no sort of insight. I've got no... But from what I see from the outside, it seems to be much more, as I say, interconnected, both in terms of it being easier to get from A to B to C to D, you know, and also in the wrestling style. Because years ago, you used to have, wherever you went in the world, you know, every country that you went to had a different wrestling style. Yeah. And that was something, to me as a young fan, that was very appealing. You know, because it offered uniqueness, it offered difference, it offered contrast. Whereas nowadays... The wrestling style that you see on all of these things is much of a muchness, and it's kind of a hybrid of all these old styles, if you like. That has its good points and its bad points. I mean, the good is that it makes everyone sort of much more easy to fit together, you know, because they all work this same style. But at the same time, it does lose its sort of uniqueness, and you do lose the uniqueness of different people from around the world, you know, having these different styles and things. I think that's right. I mean, 
there's various terms and words that you could use for it. I remember one phrase I heard years ago being the cookie cutter at mm. WWE, where they'll hire a guy because they've spotted him and they think, oh, he's really good. You know, he's got potential to be a superstar and we really love how he does that. And then they send them to somewhere to get rid of all that uniqueness <laughs> yeah. and then um, become generic like everyone else. And it's seen as a bad thing if you show out from that. Uh-huh. That's my perception anyway. I don't know if it's changed much or if at all. But it certainly was the case that your CM Punks of the world, a proper internet darling of the wrestling world, uh-huh. had to go through that process of, oh, we need to make sure you can work our style. And I'm still never convinced that's not some form of, I don't want to say a rib, but almost like a, you're going to learn who's in charge here type yeah, situation. There is a bit of that vibe, isn't there? Of This is the way we do it. This is the correct way. You will learn the correct way. Yeah, and if you don't do it that way, you're dangerous. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're not safe to work with. But yeah, everything changes. It's changed days, and it's odd because there are still some people kicking about from those old days that oh. came up through territories to some degree. But now they are in their position. They're happy to have it where everyone else goes through that new process, albeit they got to where they are based on doing it the old way. There's probably not a right or wrong answer. It's just like anything else yeah. in life. Things change. Yeah, things change. Whether they evolve is down to individual perception. Exactly. Of course, refereeing a show, not the easiest job in the world. I mean, I've done it myself a few times. I'd imagine that probably the more memorable nights are maybe the worst ones rather than the best. What are some of the more difficult nights you can remember? And if you remember, some of the best as well. I suppose what makes a difficult night or in any situation when something goes wrong you know and it doesn't go to plan and particularly uh-huh. if you're at the heart of that so i remember once actually i did this show for bcw and i'm on the way to the venue and it came to light that the other referee wasn't going to be there i can't remember who that was but they were really excited because raven from ecw stroke wwf and all that was going to be there and i remember i'm with andy and i'm sure we were on a bus traveling from wherever to east school bride for the show and I remember saying to Andy, before I knew that a referee wasn't going to turn up, oh, that's cool that he's really excited about this, because like, the last time I liked Raven was when he was Johnny Polo. <laughs> and then I think it was actually Andy got a text just saying, oh, if Tony's with you, can you just let him know he's going to ref all the show because such and such isn't going to be here? I was like, mm-hmm. oh, well, here we go. And it was a really weird one that night for a few reasons. One, I think it was the first time I'd seen firsthand the whole dark match concept. So you got to come in and get your seat in the front row, but there was no other fans there, and you just got to see a match that, well, to be blunt, the reason they're not dark match is they aren't on the main card. Uh-huh. So that's not to say they're bad wrestlers, it's just they've not got a spotlight on them at that point in time. You know what I mean? So it wasn't actually that much of a big thing. You know, it would just be better if they probably just said, oh yeah, pay the extra money and we'll guarantee you you get that seat. So that is one thing I remember. But the other thing I remember is Raven just wasn't there before the show. And it was one of these awkward ones for Colin. I do genuinely sympathise with promoters when, you know, people aren't there and they're not even in the same country as the show when the show starts. I think that was one of those ones where I'm pretty sure Alex and whoever was doing the driving, they'd really struggled with Raven the whole weekend. I think this was actually the same weekend as the Japanese guys being in Kurluk. So I think that was a Friday, the Kurluk show. No show on Saturday for Colin because that super show is on down south. And then the Sunday night was Raven. 
And what happened was like Alex and Raven were having this feud for their promotion, whatever it was, be it FWA or whatnot. And then they were going to do their match in Scotland on the Sunday night for Colin. I remember, like, it just seemed to me that Raven was being a total dick. You know, he's, like, drinking and whatnot and maybe taking other stuff. He's wanting to go to knocking shops and, you know, just <laughs> all this stuff. And I'm not making stuff up here. That's stuff that we are hearing coming through, you know, because people are phoning up, you know, Alex or whoever he's got driving and saying, oh, where are you? And, oh, we had to stop off at a service station and now he's insisting we go and do this, we go and do that. And, you know, it's a bloody nightmare. Uh-huh. So meanwhile, the show started and done the first half. And then like the second half started, and I think at some point, either near the end of the first half or at the start of the second half, if you remember the layout in East School Bride before we get changed in the courtroom, you've got the ring in the middle of the room. And the way I'm picturing this in my mind, over to the right-hand side, you've got the dressing rooms, and over to the left-hand side is where the punters have come in the door. I'm pretty sure that Raven, Alex, and the other people that were in the car you know, just sort of a casually strolled in, you know, during one of the matches. That's how I remember it happening. And Raven didn't actually go and speak to the promoter, being Colin. He didn't go backstage at first. I think the first thing he might have done was just set up his stall to sell his T-shirts for 30 quid a pop. At some point in time, I might be getting mixed up with timings here, he's basically said that he wanted a dressing room to himself, I'm sure. So that means that one of the rooms, because there's only two rooms at that bit, one of the rooms has had to be cleared. So the guys that are in one of those rooms have had to go into another room during the show. Uh, they weren't exactly the biggest rooms in the first place. No, I mean, they were tiny. But yeah, I've not even said hi to the guy. In fairness, I'm not a fan of him, but that doesn't matter. You know, you don't know anyone sometimes. You know, I've never watched the Japanese guys. That didn't mean that I didn't like them. But I wasn't going in thinking I'm going to fanboy over Raven. And he certainly uh-huh. didn't win me over with all that stuff I'm hearing about. Oh, he's absolutely drunk. He's wanting to get drugs. And he's wanting to go to knock shop. You know, it's like, what the hell is this guy about? You know, he's living the persona, I suppose, again, isn't he? You know, I'm a star. And it's like, you know, mate, just keep your money and you're going to need it when you get back home to pay your rent. You know what I mean? But anyway, he's selling these T-shirts for 30 quid. Bear in mind, this is over 15 years ago. And he's selling T-shirts to people for 30 quid. It's just a bit weird to me. Even the WWF weren't doing that at the time, do you know what I mean? So just all these things are like bugging me about the guy before I've even met him. But that doesn't matter because so long as I can just work out what his match is and what the finish is. And to cut a long story short, I don't think I knew anything about the match while Alex is coming to the ring. You know, I've been refing the matches and I still don't have a clue what they're going to do. And then Alex gets in the ring and I'm talking to him and, you know, Alex couldn't pick me out of a lineup, right? You know, mm-hmm. like, see if I walked into a room and Alex Shane is there, I would recognise him. He wouldn't know me for a split second, you know? Uh-huh. But any interactions I had with him up until that point, well, all points actually were always brand new. I always found it to be a nice, charming guy. That's how he came across, isn't it? I know you'd know uh-huh. him pretty well for a long time, but I've never had a problem with the guy. He was always very nice and civil. Uh-huh. That's what you want in life, isn't it? He's telling me what the finish is and stuff, and I think in my mind that might have changed a bit once Raven got in the ring. He's come in the ring and he's done his entrance and he's got his leather jacket off, and that's the first time I've spoken to the guy. And, you know, we're sort of like, hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, how are you? Type thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, I mean, yeah, you could tell he'd been having a rough weekend, you know what I mean? I remember the match started, and well, I remember bits of the match, but I just remember thinking... This just isn't going right. I don't feel comfortable at all with this. 
But see, as the referee, it's really difficult for you to say to one of the wrestlers, oh, can you remind me of this or tell me this? It's supposed to be the other way about where I know what they've had planned and I can help them Uh guide it along. Or if they want some suggestions from me, I can certainly help them out. But things were just so shaky for me that I just didn't feel comfortable at all. And rightly or wrongly, and I'm going to go for wrongly, I'm pretty sure that it was me that messed up their finish. I think, you know, I'd done a slow count or something. I should have just counted three or whatever. And then, like, you know, redone the finish and all that and the job's done. But it was just like a damn squib. I genuinely can't remember what happened, but it just wasn't what it was supposed to be for me. And I felt it coming, if that makes sense. Uh And my fault, I screwed up by not counting to three when Alex kept his shoulders down or vice versa, whatever it was. So I'll own that. I'll take that on. But I remember as well, like, thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe that. And you know what's funny? I remember going into the room that him and Alex were getting changed in. But Raven wasn't there because I think he was doing the T-shirt sales or photographs at this point. And I'm thinking, oh, God, you know, I don't want to piss off Alex. He's always been quite nice to me and all that so far. And went in and, like, there's a couple of other guys there who were maybe FWA wrestlers. I just don't know. But, like, they were sort of just sat there looking really stern. I'm like, oh, God, what have I done here? And then I spoke to Alex about it, and he was actually really kind and understanding because he knew, or at least in his view, he's like, yeah, I can kind of see where this guy's coming from. Uh He's not known anything at all up front. And then I've told him this when I get in the ring, and then he's got in and said this. It's just all been a bit messy. And Alex was actually, to my face, very sort of kind about it and saying, look, don't worry about it. You know, these things happen. That's how I remember it. But I'm thinking, right, well, I've spoke to one of them now. I'm going to go and speak to the other one. Bear in mind, at this point, I'm already changed. So I'm, like, washed and changed and in my civvies to go home. And Raven's just getting backstage. He's not been backstage since his match. And he was one of these guys. I remember he'd used loads of baby oil, you know, on his torso. So, like, you know, with heating up during the match, mixed in with his sweat, he's still, like, dripping wet. You know what I mean? He's really greasy and all that. And I remember thinking, I'm going to go and apologise but right or wrong, I'm going to also try and explain why that happened. And I did. And I think he was a bit probably taken aback because, you know, being Raven, ex-WWF superstar, ECW and all that shit, he's probably not used to anyone saying anything to him. He probably didn't even expect me to say anything to him. Uh He's probably expecting to maybe see me and approach me. And maybe that is how it should be done, quotation marks. But I just thought, I'm not going to, like, you know, leave here without having a chat with the guy at least. And I'm yeah. also not going to sit about all night waiting for him if he's wanting to say, yeah, it's cool, it doesn't matter, or give me a ball looking, I'm happy to take it on. And at first, you know, his approach was, oh, you fucked up. And I was like, yeah, I did. And like, let me explain why. And what was funny about it was, and it was just us two, and I'm pretty sure, like, again, it was these couple of guys or FWA type guys, maybe, or maybe it's a couple of local guys, just can't remember. But there's just a couple of other people around that seen this. And like, in fairness to him, to my face, he says, oh, you know what? You're right. That was a bit shit. You know, so I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, yeah, fair play. I can see what happened and why it happened. And let's just leave it at that. In the future, hopefully we can communicate a bit better before and during the matches. And I'm thinking, well, I'll take that. That'll do, you know. And at that point, you know, he put his hand out and I put my hand out and we're shaking hands. And then he sort of, a, and I genuinely don't think he'd done this maliciously, but he pulled me sort of a close and he gave me a hug. But I'm in my civvies now, and he's dripping in baby oil and sweat. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I genuinely don't think it was malicious, but now I've got to travel home in a taxi or a bus. I'm covered in his smell and, <laughs> you know, the baby <laughs> oil and his sweat and the booze that's coming out of his pores and whatever else. But yeah, that was a bad night at the office just because, you know, you're involved in a fuck up and uh-huh. yeah, it just doesn't sit well. And although in my mind, I had a good reason for fucking up, no one else would have been happy about that, I'm sure. Yeah. What about on the other side of the coin? Are there any shows that you can think of, you know, specifically where you thought, oh, you know, that's been a really good night at the office kind of thing, or that was nice to be involved in, or, you know, anything like that, really? Yeah, there's a few that actually spring to mind straight off, which is good, because I had to sort of scratch my head to think about the bad example. I really loved the second time in your venues. That might sound an odd comment. So, like, I always loved, like, the second time in Forfart or the second time in Sterling. Maybe just because I've done the travel mentally, I'm more relaxed about how my day is going to go. Uh-huh. And that's nothing to do with the actual show, obviously. But for me, I just felt more settled. Like, oh, I know where that venue is. I know what I've got in front of me for travel. And I just remember them being really fun shows and everything went, well, everything went to plan as far as it could. <laughs> albeit in the background, you've probably had to adjust things even up to bell time. Yeah, I was but... going to say, not for me, they didn't. Yeah, like, you're probably very stressed. Whereas for me, it was all very much, well, here's what we're dealing with. We're good to go. And another example where it was really good from my perspective was one of the shows I did in Italy where I get backstage. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, this has gone pretty well tonight. And I'm loving the venue. Is, again, it sounds quite arrogant or poncy, but one of the main reasons I went to do that Italy tour was just to be in what I'd call the real arenas. Uh-huh. So it was a mixture of venues, or we even done a show on the beach, for example. But I loved being in like real arenas, like the types where people are paying to go to the local arena where they normally see concerts and you know yeah. ice hockey matches, and they're paying for their whole family to go and they're buying their t-shirts and merchandise and popcorn and hot dogs. It just had the feel of this is a dream of you know being in this game for me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, because I wasn't into the British wrestling really as a kid. I didn't get the world of sport exposure. For me, it was being in venues that I thought, yeah, like WWE have been here or they could come here. You know, uh-huh. that was my little thing. But this night in particular, went backstage and the show isn't even over. I've only refed two or three matches and they were totally different matches. One, I'm pretty sure, would have been John Hayden writing Matt Morgan. So these two big giants going at it, full pelt. Another match, I think, might have involved Courtney and Lisa one-on-one in like you know a bikini contest. And then the third one would have been something like Ultimo Dragon versus M-Dog 20. So, you know, three completely different types of matches where one's sort of a deadly serious, the other one's, you know, total high fire stuff. Then the bikini one's got a bit of comedy in it. Mm-hmm. So I'm enjoying it myself. And then get backstage from whatever the most recent match was. One more match to ref, I'm sure. And the promoter walked up to me and hugged me. And I'm thinking, God, that's actually really cool because I'm feeling it tonight. And like uh-huh. he must be thinking, God, this guy's doing a really good job tonight. And people are listening, and I totally get this. They're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, you were only the referee. Why are you getting so excited? But if you think back to that Raven story, or if you think back to other things, it's all fine until you do something wrong as a referee. It's like being in charge of a murder inquiry. It's always going to be bleak. You either find the baddie or you don't. But either way, people have lost someone are not happy about it. If you're the referee, the best case that can happen is you don't mess up a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But I really did feel that like I added to the matches. And again, people are probably thinking, well, how did you add to the matches? 
well, you know, say something goes wrong when John and Matt are doing something, I'm the one that navigated them out of it. Say there was a comedy aspect to, you know, Lisa and Courtney's match. I'm in the middle of that, maybe quite literally, <laughs> you know, doing the comedy stuff with them. Uh-huh. And then with the high flyer stuff, I'm the one that's sort of just helping keep things going when you've got people who are speaking different languages. And what a great idea it is to throw a Glaswegian into the mix. Um, <laughs> but, um, so in my mind, you know, that was a great night because I'm feeling, God, I'm really feeling this tonight, more so than maybe other nights. And you get backstage and the promoter walks up and hugs you. That's mm-hmm. a good sign, isn't it? So, yeah, that was one that stood out. It's been a good night. And also, as I said, your ones where we went back to places. Absolutely love Starling and Forfar. Two of my favourite venues from all the places I've been around Britain and well, abroad to an extent. Uh-huh. Did you find that you were treated well everywhere that you worked? Or did you find some people just didn't understand the value of having a good referee? Yeah, I'd actually probably say it was, I don't know what the percentage would be, but there was a lot of that. You know, you've got to remember there are some places I didn't work, even for people that I really liked that I met. Uh-huh. An example might be Mike Musso. You know, I was around a good chunk of time where Mike was running shows and he was on your shows, you were on his shows. I never, ever worked for Mike. And I don't know if that's because he's got his ref that he loves and he trusts. But, you know, there's other people where you did actually work there. And it was very clear the feeling was, you're just here because I need someone to physically be the referee tonight. And I suppose they're just one step above not wanting to take their chances with saying to a random that turns up, you know, one of their trainees, right, you go in and do it. And bear in mind, all the promoters I worked with, or, well, I should rephrase that, most of the promoters I worked with were actually wrestlers themselves. Uh And some of them even didn't value what the referee could add to a show but also they didn't appreciate what could just be avoided by having someone that was familiar with the guys. Because even without trying, I dare say that once I'd worked with you a few times, I kind of know your style and I kind of know, I like to think sometimes at least I knew when to sort of walk over and say, look, you're going to get a public warning here. You Uh know, there's just a sort of a feeling of this is when we're going to do it, even if we've not even explicitly spoke about something. Yeah. And that's value in itself. I do think that a lot of promoters just seen it as, oh, we just need someone to do that. And I think you'd say the same about the MCs that some people use. Yeah. Um, I'll just get my dad to do it. I'll just get my brother-in-law to do it type thing. Uh And, you know, public speaking isn't something that everyone can do. You might be the life and soul of the party on Christmas Day or down the local pub. That's not the same as stepping in the ring and acting as legitimately what the title says, the master of ceremonies. You know, you're shaping what that production is going to be about. The way that you look, the way that you sound and all that stuff. And some people just thought, I'll just do it myself or I'll just get my dad to do it. And it was the same mentality for the refereeing with some people. Other people did value it, in fairness. Sometimes they didn't. I mean, BCW, you know, being honest with you, like the only time that they would book me is if another wasn't there. You know, I remember there was a spell and I don't have any grudges or anything, but they would use the guy from WZW. I think his name was Phil Robinson. You know, he seemed a lovely man, but it's kind of weird. But I would say the same for the wrestling as well. It's kind of weird that, you know, Colin and Graham and whoever else would happily put someone else's wrestlers or referee or ring announcer, or in some cases, all of the above on their show at East Bride or Kilmarnock. Yet the people are turning up every week and helping with putting up a ring, taking down a ring, handing them a tenor or whatever it is over every week. They wouldn't put them in that Uh spot. 
I just found that quite odd. And oddly, it wasn't me as a selfish thing. I just found it odd where you're watching these folk. And again, no offence to them, but I remember you having a match with one. What was his name? I remember like, he came out and it looked like he was wearing a bin bag over himself, but I think it was Black Pleather. And how come he's in that ring and I'm stood beside Liam Thompson just now? Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't Liam be in there with Carl? Is my mindset. I think it is just a last thought. But you know what? The people that sort of ran it that way, everything was a last thought if you think about yeah. it. Everything, you know, be it the transportation, the ring, you know, everything was just all fall into place. So yeah, there's some nights that were good, some that were bad, some promotions that were good, some that were bad, <laughs> such as life. Yeah. So who were some of the best and worst people to referee? <laughs> I can't think of any specific individuals right off the bat because there's probably so many that fall into each camp. But that said, I suppose for me personally, the ones that I least enjoyed working with were the folk that would come up to you at 7.15. You know, the show starts at 7.30, at 7.15, and they'll tell you every spot and breath they're going to take and eyebrow raise they're going to have during their match. And then they'll grab you 10 minutes later and say, oh, I've just changed that. I'm going to now do this, 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 this. As a referee, and I think this is a common one, having spoken to some of the WWE guys and working with people like Ricardo in Italy, it sounds lazy, but I suppose if you're going to be working seven matches, the less you know, the better. You're wanting to get the bullet points. You're wanting to get the finish. Ultimately, that's what you want. You want yeah. to know what the finish is for a match. And you also want to know, oh, well, if you're wanting me to bump, what's going to be the lead into it? What do you want me to do? Or how do you want me to do it? And do you want me to use a gimmick? How do you want me to use that? At what point, etc.? So I suppose the ones that were the best were people that might tell you, here's broad strokes, what's going to happen in the match. Uh-huh. Here's what the finish is. And I'd put people like yourself in that category. Then there was other people that wanted to tell you their life story and then they would change it. And then they would get in the ring and they would change it again. You know, the music's playing for their opponent and they're saying, oh, instead of that drop kick, what we're going to do instead, and it's like, I'm really struggling to hear you. <laughs> I'm going to forget everything soon because I'm also trying to remember the next match and the one after that. Can you just tell me the finish and anything I really need to know? So that might sound lazy to people that haven't refed, but that's how I felt about it. And it's certainly how people I've spoken to, including, as I say, even some WWE guys that I spoke to felt about it. The less we know in that sense, the better. Because it also adds to a bit of reality as well. If you're trying to remember so much, it can become a bit robotic for you because you're trying to remember everything for that match and you're also thinking ahead to the next match. Whereas if you've just got a bit of clarity and it doesn't change too much, you're having a good match, you're having a match with people that are good to work with, that's probably it in a nutshell. So, you know, some of these folks that would do all the flippy floppy stuff typically would want to tell you every single nook and cranny of it all. And then say, why didn't you hold the ladder at that point? And it's like, well, I was trying to remember my name at that point. <laughs> you know, I was trying to remember so many things at that point, you know. So, yeah, I think horses for courses. Other people might give you a different answer. I can't think of specific names, but broadly speaking, that's how I feel. It's really just about trying to do your best in an awkward situation quite a lot of the time. So, I mean, looking back on your whole experience over the time that you were involved in wrestling... How would you kind of reflect back on it all as an experience? It was no doubt an amazing experience. And it's one that, you know, I'm sat here talking to you so many years later about, Carl. 
there was ups and downs. There was people that were amazing to get to meet. You know, people like yourself, Spinner, Drew, Andy, Grogan. You know, some of these people I'm not even in touch with anymore. But at the time, it was great to just be around them almost every weekend. There was obviously some people that I didn't care for as much as others. I don't see them and I don't miss them either. But broadly speaking, I remember it fondly. I remember it being a positive thing. Messed up now and again, but who doesn't? You know, overall, I'd like to think I've done an okay enough job. Sufficient most times, but the odd hour now and again. And also, you know, just love the experience. At the time, some of it could be a drag, you know, such as the travel around if it's a pissing wet day and you're on a coach going from A to B. But overall, it was absolutely worth it and it was a great time. Lots of fun memories. I just want to say thank you so, so much for doing this. It's been absolutely brilliant, you know, catching up on some old stories and telling some new ones. And it's, it's just been absolutely brilliant. So thank you very, very much for doing this. No, thank you. And all the best with the future episodes. So that was my interview with former international referee and crime and detective show aficionado, Tony Nadette, who I'm sure you'll agree was another absolutely fantastic guest. And we do have many, many more top guests to come in future episodes, each with their own unique experiences to talk about and stories to tell from the wild and crazy world of professional wrestling. All that to come in the very near future. But it's now time for the next of our regular features. Quote of the Week! I say! Yes, it's Quote of the Week. And this week's Quote of the Week is... Were they? I didn't see that. Continuing the theme of interactions with the various constabularies around the British Isles, this particular incident took place on a dual carriageway in Scotland, somewhere between Stirling, where we had just run a wild promotions show, and Perthshire, where we were heading back to with the ring. Based on the people who were there, and the vehicle that Dave, who I co-owned the ring with, was driving at the time, I'm almost certain that this would have been in October 2006. At the time, Dave owned a minibus, which was very handy in ferrying people about for shows, especially during longer runs of shows, to try and cut costs. For better or worse, we also used the minibus to tow the ring in a trailer. Unfortunately though, it turned out to be completely unsuitable, And whilst towing the trailer on this particular occasion, something happened and it started zigzagging all over the place behind us. It wasn't long before we saw the flashing blue lights and the police car they belonged to then overtook us, displaying the follow me sign on its back. We stopped and the officers got out of their car and came over to the minibus, asking Dave to get out and accompany them to the car so that they could take some details. As he did so, Sharon, his wife, started going absolutely ballistic in the minibus with us, worrying that Dave was going to lose his licence, and calling the two police officers, out of their range of hearing obviously, all the names under the sun, including one term she repeated several times, namely, you fucking black bastards. Dave and Sharon are from the northeast and I knew them well by this point, 
so I knew that neither of them had a racist bone in their bodies. So I quickly worked out that this term Sharon had been using, black bastards, must actually be a slang term for police in the northeast, and indeed that was later confirmed. And besides knowing that neither Dave nor Sharon was racist in any way, I'd also seen the two police officers when we stopped and they were walking over, as I was sat in the front of the van. And let's just say that Ron Atkinson would have been more than comfortable in their company. I can only assume that the passengers in the back of the minibus didn't get quite as good a look at the very white policeman as I did. Mike Musso was one of the people further back, and as Sharon continued on her tirade, effing and blinding like there was no tomorrow, and angrily repeating again, You fucking black bastards! Mike suddenly went, Were they? I didn't see that. As I say, I'd quickly cottoned on to what she was really on about, but I didn't want to spoil this little misunderstanding just yet. I can only imagine what Mike must have thought of her, sitting there in the bus. Incidentally, this was one of very few occasions I ever saw Sharon lose her cool, as she was normally the most laid-back person you could ever meet. She did eventually calm down, though, and we managed to get on our way again, after David straightened everything out with the two officers. Rightly or wrongly, I'm going to blame the misunderstanding on this night for another incident where Mike had some confusion, shall we say, about different groups and races of people. A couple of years later, shortly before Christmas in 2008, my wife Tracy and me had Mike and Alan Grogan over for a few drinks and a catch-up. After a suitable amount of alcohol had been consumed, we started playing a game similar to charades, where each person had a piece of paper with something written on it stuck to their forehead so they couldn't see it, with the other people having to try and act out clues for the person to try and guess. Mike had already come up with a couple of cracking clues, including excitedly pointing to a radiator and saying, It's like this, when trying to describe the TV programme WWE Superstars, because it was like heat. Funnily enough, I didn't get that one. I fancied my chances on my next turn, though, especially when Mike, again, took to the amateur stage and started tomahawk chopping around in a circle. My hopes were further raised when he then cupped his hand in front of his mouth and started making that <laughs> noise stereotypically attributed to Native Americans. I decided to chance my arm and said Native American Indian, thinking that this had to be an absolute shoo-in. But to my surprise, I was wrong, and this completely stumped me to the point where I didn't have a clue what else it possibly even could be, so gave up. Much like the radiator clue, I had no chance really, and was understandably aggrieved when I took the paper off my head, looked at it, and saw the word Zulu. This then led to a lengthy and animated discussion about what a Zulu actually was. I think we gave up and played something else after that. Uh, if only Cards Against Humanity had been around in those days. That particular night was also notable for Mike and Alan taking it upon themselves to hide a load of sprouts around various places in our flat. 
This wasn't some sort of elaborate party game, by the way. Rather, just the two of them being absolute dicks, as was the style at the time. We found the first few pretty quickly, as they were in easy-to-spot locations, and with my parents coming up from Birmingham the following day to stay with us over Christmas, after Mike and Alan had gone, our task became to try and find and dispose of all the sprouts as quickly as possible. After an extensive search of the flat, we managed to get what we thought was all of them, but a couple of weeks later, we noticed a strange smell in the bathroom. This persisted for a few days, despite us spraying air freshener and trying whatever else to clear the smell. Thinking there was maybe something wrong with the toilet or plumbing, we were about to call the letting agents to get someone to come round and have a look at it, when I lifted up the toilet brush to find a rotted sprout in the holder, which we quickly disposed of. I never did get the pair of them back for that, come to think of it. Maybe a long overdue receipt might have to be on the cards the next time we're up in Scotland, and I'll be sure to report back here if it does happen. So that was Quote of the Week for this week. And as we approach the end of another episode, it's now time for our final feature. Song of the Week Yes, it's Song of the Week. As we talked about in episode 20, it's fair to say that my current guest has an interest in crime and detective shows, as do I, and fitting the common theme of episode 22's features as well as us both being ardent fans of one programme in particular, I could only make Song of the Week this time one thing. And yes, I do also blame Tony for me recently getting back into obsessively watching old episodes of this programme. Without a doubt, one of the greatest television programmes ever made. Also, with one of the best theme tunes ever. So, without any further ado... Here is this week's Song of the Week, Overkill, by Andy Pask and Charlie Morgan, otherwise known as the theme from The Bill. You slag! just about it again for this time thank you all very very much for listening 
and thank you again to my fantastic guest, Tony Nadette. Just a reminder that next time we'll see the first part of my chat with my good friend Justin Richards as we talk all about our trip to Wrestling Canada in 2001 and the incredible experiences both wrestling-wise and culturally we both had out there. You really won't want to miss these fantastic episodes, so do keep a lookout on our social media pages for details of when episode 23 will be available. Until that time, if you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet our posts and recommend us to others. Please do also get in touch and let us know what you think. We do love to hear your feedback. So until next time, this is Carl Stewart, signing off and saying goodbye and thank you.